and gentlemen, welcome to the Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Agent Smith. It's been a while. It's October the 25th, 2020. Shit has happened, and we are here to talk about it. I am joined by none other than Agent Smith himself. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you? Pretty solid, pretty tired. I was hoping that we could get our daylight savings thing. I think Europe did today, but November the 1st, we get an extra hour of sleep, which I will thoroughly enjoy. <laughs> I hope you do so. Same. I uh, watched two memes recently that were pretty funny. Uh, one of them was the new Borat movie, oh, which is on Amazon Prime, and also the presidential debate, the <laughs> final one, which was probably a little bit funnier, but a little bit more cringy as well. Did you watch the first one? Yes, some of it. The thing that really stood out to me between the two of them was the moderator, actually. Oh, really? The moderator for this most recent one was a beast. Like, being able to cut off the president of the United States of America is a pretty dicey thing to do because you feel like, well, by the authority of the station of the executive office of the country with the greatest GDP in the world, like, can I tell this person to shut the heck up? It's kind of difficult to do, but if you're a moderator in a debate, that's your job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it was a pretty interesting debate in that sense. I can't think of any presidential debates that have had a mute button like that. Very unique. And I guess it just speaks to the moment that we're in and all the sort of unique things happening right now. Must have been yeah. a very satisfying button to push, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the attitude right now where people are really trying to assert their opinions and convictions. And the loudest voice often wins, even if that's not the best way to decide a winner. It's just mm. that you continue to shout and shout without relenting, and yeah. you get the talking space as a result. That was one of the things that I I think I first really learned and practiced from Kukio, which was whenever he was in a debate or discussion with someone who was getting kind of flustered and upset, he would never raise his voice and like shout at that level. Sometimes he would get more quiet because he didn't need to use sound to prove that he was correct. Mm -hmm. I remember another one of my friends who went to the Math and Science Academy, and he was the kind of person who whenever there was a smart person in the room, he would want to try to box and see if he was smarter or knew more about this topic or he, if he could win the conversation and that kind of thing. And Kukio was one of the most annoying people for him to discuss with because he didn't care who won. He just wanted to figure out what the other person was thinking <laughs> and really understand that and then kind of ask questions to figure out where they really were with yeah. all of it. So. I wish the world had more of that. I challenge everyone who listens to to try that whenever you're in a debate or discussion with someone to take up the quest to genuinely understand what they're on about and where they're coming from. Because many times people are holding a rational position. It might not be the correct position, but it's based on reasons that they've found for something. Mm -hmm. So if you can understand those reasons, it's a lot easier to be compassionate and be less judgmental. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent approach. Socratic method, I think, is what it's called sometimes. 
yeah. taking a line of questioning instead of trying to make assertions and assert or to tell the person that you're correct. You really try to ask questions and oftentimes that can lead the person to discover weaknesses in their own argument. And it's a really big win if they feel like they discovered this themselves through that conversation. That way they can still feel smart even if they were wrong. Aha, yeah. <laughs> uh -huh, now that you put it that way, actually this and this, okay, wow. And the upshot is that sometimes they come to a conclusion that uh, is different than the one you were expecting, but is actually more well-argued and more well-reasoned than what you uh, had started with. So you can learn something too mm -hmm. by taking that approach, depending on how things shake out. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of people just don't have the patience for that. You know, it's uh, a lot of people just want to, well, basically validation, you know. They'll discuss politics because they want to be agreed with <laughs> rather than because they want to uh, learn something or because they want to inform someone. So Confirmation bias is a hell of a drug. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately so. Yeah, but that's just human nature. You, know, you just kind of have to roll with it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, other than the Bo Rat movie... <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything in particular that caught your eye lately? Uh, there was some fussing about the king of Thailand, who I think we discussed pretty recently, or in the most recent episode, at least, Yeah. Um, about how the country is having some problems and they're kind of mad that he's not there to work on it. Oh, he's there. He's just not... He's there, much. he's just not there, you know. He spends most of his time in Germany, actually, which kind of surprised me. I had thought, I had known that he had spent most of his life in Germany uh, before he became king, but uh, I had thought after he became king that he was spending more time in Thailand, but apparently that's not true. Uh, I don't know that it would have really mattered even if he had, had stayed in Thailand, though. He doesn't really seem to be. I don't know. He's not the best king, basically. <laughs> I can say that because I'm not in Thailand. You know, there's a lot of criticism of him because he is kind of more of a playboy and uh, because he is seen as being very close to the Thai military, which is the real power in Thai politics. Yeah, I think the last time we mostly talked about some of the uh, catalysts for the current unrest and mass protests in Thailand. Uh, some of the assassinations by the government and the timeline, a rough timeline of events uh, leading up to the current protests, you know, encompassing the, uh, what, red shirt and yellow shirt protests back in the day, and then the military seizing power and the delays uh, in new elections, and then the new constitution, which of course fe heavily favors the military. Uh, and then of course, the current context, you know, the most recent elections, which were finally held, and the banning of the uh, principal opposition party, specifically the principal pro-democracy opposition party. And uh, that, of course, caused protests, and that's kind of where we are now. So that's, that's a sort of Cliff Notes version of what we talked about last time. Uh, since then, basically, the protests have just been snowballing. And... Uh, they're not necessarily unique 
per se, you know, in that sense, you know, mass protests are mass protests. It's mostly young people, uh, heavily influenced by students. Uh, the government doesn't really know what to do about it. So it kind of leaps between being, uh, kind of jumps between being conciliatory and being uh, repressive, uh, depending on, you know, who's in charge and, you know, how they feel about the sort of political wins vis-a-vis the protests. So that's all pretty much par for the course as far as mass protests in any country. Uh, the one unique thing that's kind of come out of the most recent wave of protests over the past couple of months in Thailand is that the protesters are have been much more open about challenging the monarchy, which is, which is actually very new. Uh, historically speaking, the monarchy has been uh, taboo. You know, well, I mean, not the monarchy itself, but uh, discussion and criticism of the monarchy has been taboo in Thai politics, and uh, that's changing now. You know, I think again, kind of like what we talked about last time, a lot of that, well, some of it has to do with criticism of the current king because he isn't really seen as being nearly as prestigious a figurehead as his father was, you know, his father helped augur in uh, a period of relative political openness and democracy in Thai politics. And back in the 70s, he sided with protesters and pushed the military to democratize Thailand. So in that sense, he was able to win over a good chunk of the population and bring newfound respect to the institution of the monarchy. So everybody, the military, conservatives and reformers, protesters, what have you, all liked that guy for that reason. You know, the conservatives respected him because he was the king and because they, you know, just by tradition, they were supposed to respect him. And then the liberals and reformers respected him because of what he did for them. So there was a kind of consensus in Thai politics that the status quo was acceptable because he was a pretty stand up guy. But his son just isn't that, you know, he's, again, more of a playboy doesn't spend a lot of time in Thailand. You know, there was real discussion when his father died about whether it would be a good idea to change the rules of succession so that uh, one of the king's daughters could succeed him. Uh, he had some pretty well-respected daughters who were active in, uh, you know, humanitarian and philanthropy and that kind of thing. Uh, but that didn't happen. And I think the Thai military kind of liked it that way because they probably looked at this guy and saw him as someone that who would be easy to control. That's a conjecture on my part, but that seems pretty intuitive to me, at least looking at it from as an outsider. So the current king just doesn't have the same level of respect, and uh, that combined with the fact that he's pretty explicitly for the Thai military and the status quo uh, has led the protesters to pretty well turn on him, and it's happening to a degree that's unprecedented in uh, the modern history of Thailand. It's uh, never quite happened before. And it's becoming normalized. You know, that's the even stranger thing. You know, you might expect that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily unusual that young people would uh, espouse radical political views, but it is somewhat unusual in so much as sort of middle-aged and older people, not all of them, but, uh, you know, a good chunk of them in Thailand who are politically sympathetic are also jumping on board. So we could be witnessing the death of a political norm, and that, uh, and that is, uh, if that comes to pass, that would be a significant historical marker for the history of Thailand. Uh, I don't think they'll get rid of the monarchy, monarchy completely. I don't think that's what they're asking for. But I think they are asking for a significant watering down of protections uh, surrounding the monarchy and discussion thereof. 
and also uh, some watering down of the actual power enjoyed by the Thai monarchy within the context of Thai political institutions. So that's gaining traction, and uh, we'll see where that goes. I mean, the Thai military kind of doesn't really know what to do about it. Um, You know, as with the case with authoritarians throughout history, they're a little bit caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, if they crack down violently, that'll probably stop the protests, but then they lose all legitimacy. And uh, at that point, you know, there's going to be no end to the potential for radicalization and potentially political violence, to say nothing of of the damage it would do to Thailand's reputation overseas. That could have uh, an impact on Thai tourism, Thai foreign trade, etc., which is still an important part of the Thai economy. But on the other hand, if uh, you know they take too light a touch, then the protests could just go on interminably, and uh, you know even more threatening <laughs> for the Thai military is that they might actually have to give up some power as part of some uh, concession in a political deal, which of course they don't want to do. I don't quite know the current leadership of the Thai military well enough to know whether that's the case because they are just ambitious and because they, as individuals, really just want uh, to be powerful in Thai politics, either for the money or uh, just because they think that democracy or uh, perhaps Democrats generally are just bad for the country, given all the unrest that they've caused over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, That could be the case, or alternatively, Uh, they could just honestly be out for the perceived best interest of Thailand. You know, uh, that's kind of what Augusto Pinochet did in Chile. You know, there certainly was a fair amount of self-interest in the things he did in office, but he always colored himself as the father of the nation, so to speak. You know, he really thought that, uh, or at least he seemed to really think that he was doing what was best for Chile. So I think there could be something similar in the Thai military, possibly, you know, again, that's a point of uncertainty for me. I'm not sure which it is. If we have anybody familiar with Thailand in chat, feel free to let me know because <laughs> you guys would know better than I would. I think I do have some notes here about uh, just what the protesters have been asking for more recently. Let's see, they're demanding amendments to the constitution. That's pretty much uh, necessary given some of the other things they've been asking for. They want a new election an end to the harassment of rights activists and state critics. So basically less state repression, no surprise there. Oh, this is one of the big ones, calling on curbs on the king's powers. That's pretty unprecedented. I don't know the details of that, though. I think it had to do with wealth, though. Uh, Yeah, this was a recent thing. The king recently declared uh, crown wealth to be his personal property. That was a pretty big change because the norm had been that uh, the king's wealth, such as it was, uh, was technically a trust held for the benefit of the people. So instead of maintaining that norm, the king, the current king, uh, just came out and said, this shit is mine. (laughs) (laughs) This wealth is mine and you can't have it. So technically that was true before, but uh, there was sort of this norm in place that was meant to at least pretense uh, to be governing in, you know, for the benefit of the broader public. So breaking from that has been very unpopular. And so uh, protesters are demanding that be reversed. So previously, the crown could use the wealth, but it was technically at least listed as the property of the people. But now he's just claiming that it's his period. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, a public trust is basically uh a fund that is managed professionally 
on behalf of someone or some group. So technically before the wealth was public wealth uh, that the king was managing on behalf of the public. The change now is that he's just saying he's not managing it on behalf of the public. It's his stuff that he's managing for him. So it's a technical change, uh, but it has a lot of symbolic value and it aggravated the protests substantially. So it's significant. So it is uh, politically significant to uh, the current goings on in Thailand. Uh, let's see. He's also declared. Oh, he took personal command of all military units in Bangkok. And that's never been done in Thai history. That's not even like a norm or anything. That was just that's just never been done. Why would he do that? I'm not sure exactly. I haven't read a whole lot about it. I didn't read about it when it happened, so it kind of passed under my radar. I mean, obviously, intuitively, uh, it just means that he has more power concentrated in his own hands. Uh, you know, if something were to happen as far as like a mass uprising or what have you, or if the military turned on him, he would have some of his own units under his control in Bangkok uh, that he could turn to to protect him. But you know, I kind of wonder whether or not it really happened that way or if that's really what's going on, because I would be genuinely surprised if the Thai military really gave up direct control over units like that. I, I kind of suspect maybe it was a kind of informal thing where technically he controls them directly, but maybe there's an understanding with uh, the Thai military that they're still the, really the ones in control. Something to that effect. I suspect there's a lot of informal agreements like that between the monarchy and the military. Uh, but I, oh, of course, I can't really prove that. You know, that's just my suspicion, given how much they uh, work together, you know, sort of implicitly towards common purposes. But obviously, that's in the context of the current protests. That move also was pretty unpopular. So that's also something that they want to see reversed. Yeah, those are the principal demands that I have recorded here. I think the constitutional changes they want just have to do with the election. I think they want to undo uh, the electoral system that was created by the military uh, in the current constitution, which if I'm not mistaken, because it's been a while since I've read about it, but if I'm remembering correctly, a certain proportion of the seats in the Thai legislature are reserved for military appointees, as opposed to being directly elected by the Thai people. And I think it's a pretty significant proportion. I think it's something like 25%, maybe, if I'm not mistaken. Burma did something very similar. Maybe I'm uh, confusing it with that. But I, sus but I think the protesters are trying to just scrap that completely and put power squarely uh, back in civilian hands as far as the allocation of seats in the legislature. So let's see, beyond the protest demands, there's also been uh, a lot of activity by the Thai government uh, trying to clamp down on the protest or at least slow them down. Uh, they declared a state of emergency for a while in an effort to try to stop the protest. Uh, but I don't know how much they really did with that that they weren't already doing. I think they mostly just did it to justify sending in military police and uh, military units to try to uh, corral protesters and whatnot. But they actually ended up canceling that. I think uh, from what I heard on the radio, I've been listening to the radio lately. What I heard on the radio is that uh, they had been taken to court over that state of emergency and that it looked like they were actually going to lose the case. And so for that reason, they canceled the state of emergency. Again, if you're from Thailand, please correct me on that if I'm wrong. You know, I'm certainly 
I guess I should just give the usual disclaimer. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. I have a, more of a background in uh, economics and some foreign policy. So if I ever say anything wrong, stupid, or biased, uh, Chad is encouraged to uh, correct me. You know, if I'm wrong, I want to know more than anybody. So by all means, uh, do contribute in chat. I don't read chat while we do this. Uh, you know, I can't really <laughs> walk and chew bubble gum at the same time, unfortunately. So, but I will read it later. So, you know, I will see it eventually. So that's uh, the usual disclaimer there. Uh, just to kind of highlight, you know, that uh, I welcome criticism and that uh, specifically with regard to what we're talking about right now, uh, if anybody has more background knowledge on this, please do elaborate on some of the topics here in chat, because, you know, I would certainly appreciate that. And other people listening and uh, reading chat also, I think, would stand to learn quite a bit. I guess that's about all I have on it. I don't I've got different things here. The, the protesters want uh, the resignation of the prime minister, but that's no shock. He's a general or a former general. But that just kind of goes part and parcel with their systemic reform uh, that they're demanding. Went over all that, yeah. So that's just what's going on in Thailand right now. Mass protests and uh, mostly an attempt by protesters to change the electoral system and uh, reform, I guess, to be to be diplomatic, uh, reform the monarchy uh, with the uh, Thai military in turn resisting them. You know, declaring the state of emergency, sending in troops to manage protests, and uh, I think they also tried to ban Telegram. That's a thing, right? Telegram? Telegram? That's what I had written. Or maybe it was Instagram. No, Telegram. Telegram messaging app. That's what it was. So they were going to block that. There was apparently a leak uh, that was released to the media uh, outlining plans by the Thai government to ban that. I don't know if they ever actually went through with that, though. I think they kind of got caught red-handed beforehand, and so maybe they backed off of it. Oh, you know what? I did have some notes on the state of emergency. They apparently arrested uh, dozens of activists, quote unquote. Let's see. And they ordered investigations into some news outlets, including suspending an online platform called Voice TV, uh, which is a local broadcaster. None of that really worked, though. Yeah, it's always difficult uh to stop a protest movement you know it's it's a balancing act in the best of circumstances between being too hard and being too soft I, I we talked about protests and counter protest strategy i think last year because there was a whole gaggle of protests in late 2019 all over the world and i think we kind of went through them and just kind of reviewed them and some of the strategies that were being taken by governments and protesters so this is kind of a case study in that you know it's basically the same thing it seems like what they're asking for does, isn't that strange, at least from an American perspective. But with the history of the monarchy, I would guess that some people like, well, the monarch should be able to do whatever they want. Well, nothing quite that far. But but yeah, there are people who uh, there are traditionalists in Thailand who don't really appreciate uh, the Thai monarchy being criticized. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's politics is never simple. You know, it's never as simple as you know, traditionalists versus reformers. There's almost always subtext there, you know, underlying historical factors and 
competing interest groups that are kind of appropriating those kinds of discussions and that kind of rhetoric for their own purposes. In the context of Thailand, you know, there's a lot of uh, traditionalists who are, one, older. You know, generally the performers and protesters tend to skew towards the younger side. And uh, because they're older, they tend to have more vested interests into the status quo, you know, especially business interests. And uh, they also tend to be relatively more urban. You know, the red shirt, yellow shirt divide was actually not so much about democracy and the monarchy so much as it was an urban-rural divide, which is something that you can see in any given political system, you know, including the United States. And uh, I suspect that's the real subtext to the current uh, political discord in Thailand. It's not just uh, reformists versus traditionalists. It's also uh, urban business elite versus uh rural sort of underdogs. I don't want to call them peasants because they're not, you know, there's plenty of relatively well-off people in rural Thailand, but uh, rural Thai provinces are underserved. You know, government policy tends to emphasize urban economic interests over rural interests. And as a result, uh, there's a lack of public services in rural areas and the political preferences of rural areas tend to be given short shrift in Thai politics. So that's kind of the subtext there. You know, I'm not saying that there are not genuine reformers. You know, certainly uh, the students tend to be relatively well-educated and middle-class. So, you know, there's an urban element there too. But the business interests they're taking on are generally more urban in nature. You know, it's, uh, that's just uh, the underlying, I I guess I already said that, that's the underlying subtext there. So it's, uh, there's a kind of intersectionality there in terms of different political issues and schisms in Thai politics, uh, in terms of how the, that political issue about the Thai monarchy and the Thai government is being used by different interest groups, if that makes any sense. This is what, this is what happens when my notes aren't organized. You know, sometimes I'll just uh, read articles over time and listen to stories and whatnot, and I'll write down the important bits. And a uh, given issues just accumulate over time. You know, the notes for a given issue accumulate over time. And so if they're not organized, then they just kind of don't make sense. I can't just kind of read through them and see the plot thread and describe it in a coherent way. You know, as as is, they're not organized. So I'm just seeing things, you know, notes here and there. So it's kind of hard to read through it quickly, having not read, for, read through it in a long time and give you sort of a good summary of it. But since you brought it up, I wanted to kind of dig into it for you. What's well, an interesting country of the Asian countries? Is it maybe one of the few that still has a monarchy? Uh, you'd be surprised. You know, there's actually a fair number in Asia that still have monarchies. Or did you say East Asia specifically? I think I said Asia, but I meant to say East Asia now that you mentioned it. Okay. Yeah, East Asia, well, East Asia and Southeast Asia anyway. Thailand is technically Southeast. But yeah, you'd be surprised. Uh, Japan obviously still has their monarch. Uh, Malaysia actually has a king. Uh, Cambodia actually has a king, which is especially weird. And we could talk about that if you want. Uh, Brunei has a king, actually technically a sultan in that case. I don't think Indonesia has one. I think they have a republic. And Vietnam obviously is communist and Laos as well. So they obviously don't have monarchs. Korea is a republic. Uh, North Korea is a quote unquote people's republic. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, China, of course, is uh, <laughs> also a people's republic. So Mongolia is kind of weird. It's a transitioning democracy. I guess it's not transitioning anymore, though. I guess that's me showing my age. from what into what? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Mongolia was a communist state. It was actually a satellite state of the Soviet Union for a very long time. And uh, after the Cold War ended, they transitioned to democracy like a lot of other formerly communist states did. So I, I guess because I'm a little bit older, I still kind of think of it as a transitioning state. But that, you know, it's been transitioning, quote unquote, for what, 30, 30 35 years now. So I guess it's not really transitioning anymore. I guess it's kind of become what it's going to become. But yeah, there's... There's a fair number of monarchies over there still. I guess those that those four I listed in particular. Let's see. Yeah, so that's Thailand. Did you see any other interesting tidbits that caught your eye? Mm. Oh, how is that one country that nobody has ever heard of that was having some really brutal and extreme protests doing? In, in Europe? The, yeah, and the crackdown. It's Belarus. a former. Yeah, how's how are they doing? Uh, they're doing status quo pretty much. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of traction on that. Yeah, the protests have been ongoing, but the government has basically said no. <laughs> it's pretty much been their whole attitude. They're not giving any ground. You know, uh, President Lukashenko came out and just said very explicitly, "I'm not stepping down." So he's pretty much thrown down the gauntlet to the protesters. And, uh, you know, to their credit, they're, they're trying to stick it out. But, it, you know, protesting is a hard strategy to make work in a political environment that is totalitarian. and Well, authoritarian, let's say. Belarus isn't maybe totalitarian per se. But, you know, in an authoritarian political system, you don't really have any commitment on the part of the government to honoring human rights. So if they really want to, they can really just crush you pretty much. They can just use violence to, uh, you know, bully you into submission. It's a much more effective strategy in uh, a democratic political context because there is a commitment there to respecting human rights. And so you can kind of force uh, governments into an awkward position where, you know, they kind of have to use force to maintain public order, but don't really want to because it comes with a political cost. So you can kind of leverage the power of elections and politics in a democratic political system with protests to a degree that you really can't in an authoritarian system. So in an authoritarian system, uh, protests kind of work more by, one, pressuring, bringing on international pressure because uh, other states that do care about human rights will sometimes place sanctions or otherwise place uh, diplomatic pressure generally on a state that is perceived to be violating them. It also works economically, you know, if you can target the principal economic interests of an authoritarian government uh, or their authoritarian uh, backers, you know, the uh, selectorate is what I remember it being described by in political science. Uh, the, the, the selectorate is sort of the group of people uh, on whom a given authoritarian government depends on the support thereof to remain on power. So sometimes the selectorate is a very narrow group of people. Sometimes it's broader. It just kind of depends on individual circumstances and history. case of Belarus, it's a pretty narrow group because it is a pretty tightly controlled authoritarian state where the government controls 
almost all of the economy. So Lukashenko doesn't have like a corporate donor or anything like that, or set of corporations and corporate donors that he depends on for support whom he has to keep happy. Uh, he pretty much himself through the government owns all of the major uh, economic institutions. So he doesn't really have too many people he has to keep happy. Uh, so in the case of Belarus, uh, what they're doing now is they're announcing, uh, well, I shouldn't say they, uh, the principal protest leader, I think her name is, let me see if I can find it here. Tika, Tika Chikanov. No, I'm going to get, I'm going to butcher it if I don't find the notes for it. Maybe I don't have it. Oh, here it is. Tikhonovsky. I think that's what her name was. So she came out, I think, today and announced that there's going to be a general strike. And obviously, she can't really coordinate that because she's living in, she's in exile right now. She's actually in Lithuania, a bordering state. Uh, the government pretty much kicked out all of the major opposition leaders or arrested them. So the... Uh, protest movement is not quite leaderless, but it's definitely a crowdsourced effort at this point, more so than one being led. But uh, last week, uh, Tikhonovska announced that there would be a general strike if the government did not give in to their demands. So, you know, the deadline came and passed, and so now that's something that they're going to push. Uh, whether or not that works out, debatable. That's something that uh, we're going to be watching closely over the course of the next week or so to see how many people actually participate and how impactful a general strike actually is. Because uh, again, you know, in the context of Belarus's political system, Lukashenko just owns everything pretty much. You know, the government runs everything. So uh, if they go on strike, it's not as though there's going to be a bunch of business owners who are pressuring Lukashenko uh, to concede ground and, uh, you know, taking a conciliatory approach to the protests. You know, instead, he's just going to basically wait them out, I suspect. You know, I suspect his long-term strategy is going to be is going to be to wait as long as possible. Uh, he could well crack down if he really feels threatened. That's always going to be an option. And I don't really think that anybody's going to bring enough international pressure on him uh, to kind of avoid that eventuality. I think he doesn't want to right now because... He kind of is doing this balancing act internationally between Russian influence and European Union influence. That's kind of a whole discussion unto itself. But, uh, you know, if things get really hairy, he's not going to be afraid to kind of send the troops in. So I'm not I'm not real sure that the protests really have a lot of hope. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't want to discourage them. You know, there's always hope in the long run, but uh, I'm not really sure how they can really pressure him. You know, I mean, I mean, I think the best case scenario for the protesters right now is that uh, key actors within the government just turn on Lukashenko, possibly for self-interest, you know, maybe because they want to do the right thing. But, you know, in a post-Soviet authoritarian government, that's that's a pretty big stretch. So I think more likely there's going to be some political actors who get ambitious, who see, who sense weakness on the part of Lukashenko and make some kind of power play. You know, if the protesters can uh, sufficiently disrupt the economy in Belarus and sufficiently bring into doubt the efficacy of Lukashenko's hold on power, maybe then you could see some action. But uh, for now, I still think Lukashenko kind of holds the high cards there. But yeah, other than prognosticating, uh, the big news is the general strike. You know, that's the thing that's 
that's the big next thing that's going to be in the news. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't think there's been any big developments there. I think it's just kind of been a cat and mouse game between the uh, protesters and the police. I think the police did escalate when they started targeting women. That was one thing I remember hearing about. You know, before they had been mostly just focusing on the men. And they've kind of been handling the women with kid gloves. But then they actually did start kind of manhandling them too and arresting them, detaining them, what have you. Is it as isolated as North Korea in the sense that people can't leave easily? No, it's not that bad. You know, it's, it's basically like a somewhat more authoritarian version of Russia. You know, you kind of can talk and online. You know, they do have access to the internet, for example. You know, that alone puts them head and tails above North Korea in terms of individual liberty. You know, you can get on uh, the contact or, you know, whatever app it is you want to use and kind of surf the web. Uh, it is censored. You know, they do. Well, it's not censored per se, but they will punish you if you say something that uh, you're not supposed to. You know, it's kind of a Vietnam. It's like Vietnam, basically. You know, in China, they just don't let you use broad swaths of the Internet. In Vietnam, which has a somewhat similar political system, you know, a one party state, uh, you know, no freedom of speech, etc. They actually allow people to use Facebook, you know, or Twitter, you know, just all manner of social apps. You know, their approach to uh, repression is not to cut people off from the Internet, but to just surveil the Internet. And if they catch you on the internet saying something that they don't like, then they come after you. But otherwise, you can kind of go on and do whatever. You know, it's a much more open approach than that of China, and you know, certainly more open than North Korea. So that's that's kind of more what Belarus does. Uh, you know, that said, it's more authoritarian than Russia in the sense that there's no real elections. You know, in Russia, they at least pretend to have elections. And sometimes the opposition even wins. It's not a real opposition. It's kind of the co-opted pseudo-opposition that they have. You know, that's a whole, you know, Russian politics is kind of a whole discussion unto itself. That's sort of the brainchild of, uh, what's his face? Kudrin was the economic guy. I forget, I forget the guy who did the pol politics. They had one particular guy who kind of designed that political system that they have in Russia. His name kind of slips my mind. But anyway, Belarus doesn't even have that sort of pseudo-illiberal democracy that Russia has. They just have straight-up dictatorship. And so there's no freedom of speech. You can't go out and protest, really, without significant consequences. Uh, you know, I mean, you kind of can get away with it if there's enough people with you. That's kind of how we got where we are now. But historically, that's not really been allowed. So it's, it's not as, to answer your question, it's not nearly as bad as uh, North Korea. It's much more open than that, but it's also not very explicitly not a free society. Okay. So somewhere between North Korea and free societies. Yeah. But, Close to Russia. Yeah, it's pretty, I guess that's a pretty broad ambit. Yeah. It's uh, no freedom of speech, no economic freedom because it is still largely a command economy. A lot of Belarus's government institutions are, don't differ that much from the institutions they had when they were the uh, Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic back when they were part of the Soviet Union. You know, they kind of just carried them over without changing them too much. You know, there was never as much of a, you know, a lot of the republics that broke away from the Soviet Union broke away because of na ethnic nationalism. Uh, that was a big contributing factor. There was also, you know, an economic factor and there was tension with Russian nationalists. A lot of people weren't 
a lot of the leaders of those republics were not comfortable with being in a Soviet Union dominated uh, by a Russian Soviet Socialist Republic that was explicitly led by ethnic nationalists like Boris Yeltsin. So that also played a factor in the breaking away. But, you know, in general, ethnic nationalism was an important factor there. And Belarus, though, Belarus had some ethnic nationalism, but it wasn't nearly as important there because, you know, Belarus has something like half its population that is ethnic Russian. And even amongst the ethnic Belarusians, uh, most of them speak Russian at home as a first language. So it's not, there's been some effort to try to resurrect Belarusian as language and the Belarusian identity. Uh, but I don't know how successful it's been. You know, I think of all the uh, Soviet republics, Belarus was the one that was probably the most assimilated into the dominant Russian culture. So for them, there wasn't nearly as much of this demand for significant changes from what they had before when they were part of the Soviet Union. You know, for them, the changes were kind of more incremental and marginal. You know, there was no shock therapy, for example, in Belarus. You know, shock therapy was the uh, dramatic economic reforms that were implemented in a number of uh, formerly communist states in Eastern Europe. Kind of a mixed bag in terms of results, but that's a whole other conversation. It's, Belarus didn't do that because there just wasn't the political demand for it. You know, they pretty much went from uh, Soviet communism to somewhat milder communism under Lukashenko. Not that big of a change in the grand scheme of things, but I think I mentioned last week or you know, the, whatever the last time we talked about it was, Belarus actually still has a KGB. You know, the, uh, you know, the local Soviet, well, not the local, but the Soviet constituent republics in the Soviet Union all had branches of the KGB that they kind of operated. And uh, generally, after the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union broke apart, they all sort of dismantled them or at least uh, reformed them. You know, Belarus didn't even do that. They just kind of kept them. So the KGB, in a sense, is still alive and well in Belarus. Pretty mysterious country. I think it's one of those that almost no one at least in the u.s has heard of yeah yeah they don't make the news much i think the recent coverage of the protests is the most news they've gotten since they became an independent country if you want to know what to think about belarus in terms of its economy uh which of course you know is a big part of any society think of natural gas and think of peat i don't know have you heard of peat before yep Oh, cool. I think they have a lot of that in Ireland as well. Yeah, for those of you listening who maybe haven't heard of it, peat is a material that you extract from a swamp. And Belarus actually has pretty significant swampland. I think it's the... Uh, oh, what was it? Oh, I can't remember what it was. but Yeah, there's a significant swampland there that straddles Belarus and Ukraine. And uh, that generates a lot of peat. Well, they, they extract a lot of peat from that and export it, and that's a big part of the economy. So beyond being uh, swamp farmers, pretty much, uh, they also generate a huge amount of money. In fact, this is this next one. Natural gas is how the government gets most of its revenue, uh, natural gas exports. And the interesting thing about that is that they don't actually produce natural gas. There's hardly any natural gas reserves in Belarus, from what I remember. Rather, what happens is that the natural gas is extracted in Kazakhstan, Central Asia, and also Russia. And then it gets uh, shipped over pipelines that run through Belarus. 
and Belarus, the Belarusian government chart gets royalties uh, for the usage of those pipelines. And so that generates a huge amount of revenue for them. So they're not a natural gas producer, but they are uh, a natural, natural gas transporter, so to speak. And it's a, you know, they transport so much gas through those pipelines that uh, it makes up a huge chunk of their revenue there, which unfortunately for them makes them very beholden to Gazprom and uh, the Russian government. But there's not much they can really do about it. Although they do get some leverage of their own, though, in the sense that so much gas passes through those pipelines that uh, they can kind of threaten Russia, they can threaten to shut down the pipeline. That probably hurts them more than it hurts Russia, but Gazprom would stand to lose quite a bit of money if they uh, couldn't transport gas through Belarus. So they have a something resembling a balance of terror there that allows Belarus to have sufficient leverage in the relationship not to get just completely dominated by Moscow. That's one of the reasons why the general strike may not do too much. You know, the general strike would really have to impact the pipeline to really strangle the government's budget. Uh, you know, to strangle them of revenue, that is. And uh, I don't know if they can. You know, I don't even know how many people in Belarus they actually employ to work on those pipelines. Gazprom pretty much operates them, so they may well import people from Russia to work on them. Yeah, something to watch. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, it is It is a quiet little country there. But it's, I mean, basically, just to sum it up, it's uh, not so post, post-communist state. <laughs> They never really got over the communism that depends on uh, transit royalties for natural gas and the export of peat. That's kind of what it comes down to. On today's episode of Did You Know That About Belarus? Yeah, if you want some more trivia, Belarus basically translates as white Russian. That's what historically they've been referred to as. They're the white Russians as opposed to the great Russians. Uh, the people who live in Russia proper, who are ethnically Russian. Is that where the beverages originated from? The beverages? There's a beverage called a white Russian. Oh, is that some alcoholic drink type yes. thing? Yeah, I think I vaguely... I don't know exactly that. what's in it, but I recognize the name. I don't know. That could well be. There might be some interesting etymology there. But Chat I... knows, I bet. Who? I bet Chat knows what's in a white Russian. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We've got 274 people. Do you know what's in this beverage? <laughs> Bailey's Vodka Ice. Nice. Yeah, historically speaking, there's not a lot of daylight between ethnic Russians and ethnic white Russians. Uh, I think the principal significance, the principal divide comes from the fact that the white Russians uh, were not really quite integrated. They were not part of Russia proper for a long time, so they didn't have the same influences. They were actually part of Poland for a long time, uh, or perhaps more accurately, the Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth, as it was technically called. It was uh, one of the major countries of Eastern Europe for several centuries uh, until it was basically partitioned into non-existence. It was a pretty dramatic change in the political geography of Eastern Europe when that happened. That had to do with trade. You know, they exported a lot of wood and whatnot, but a lot of uh, lumber started getting exported from the New World that competed down the price. And so that uh, really undermined the Polish-Lithuanian economy to the point where they couldn't really compete. There was also a lot of political intrigue. You know, Poland-Lithuania had a really open political system for the time. You know, they elected their king and they had what was called the Golden Freedom, which referred to uh, the uniquely 
broad ambit, you know, the uniquely broad discretionary power and freedom given to the nobility of Poland, Lithuania. So it was a pretty open and free place, but unfortunately that made them very vulnerable to subversion by foreign powers. So that combined with the economic decline is uh, what did them in. But anyway, that's uh, that was the kingdom, such as it was, the Commonwealth, I guess, that controlled Belarus for a long time. And so Belarus was much more influenced by Polish culture uh, than it was Russian culture for several centuries. And that created something of a relatively minor cultural divide between white Russians and great Russians that has persisted somewhat to the present day. But again, they've largely assimilated. You know, there was a, after they were integrated into the Russian empire and the Soviet union, they were pretty thoroughly assimilated by into Russian culture. Some effort to revive it since independence, but you know, again, I don't know how much traction that's really gotten. We'll see. Maybe the protesters will take it up as a cause. There's some symbolic value in uh, taking using ethnic nationalism and national identities to try to challenge an existing authority. So it could be that the protest movement appropriates some of that national symbolism and that in doing so, they revive the identity. But that's pure conjecture on my part. I have no idea if that's actually going to happen, but that is possible. Kind of saw that in Poland, you know, that was uh, Polish nationalism was a big touchstone for opposition to communist rule during the Cold War. And that's uh, that was a big part of their politics even before, you know, the Cold War, but especially during. So there were a lot of opposition candidates and figures were able to kind of leverage that nationalism against uh, the Polish Communist Party. I'm just kind of rambling at this point, so... <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to know about Belarus? No, nope, that's a good amount. <laughs> that's a good amount. Okay. So was there anything else that you heard about that you wanted to touch on? Uh, there was a question that someone tagged me with that I was able to grab that I knew absolutely nothing about, which I'm kind of interested Hearing your take. That was Azerbaijan and Armenia. <laughs> I've heard that uh, yeah. there's something going on there. Yeah, there's a war. Have you heard anything about that? There was a bombing in Ganja or something. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. <clears throat> but it is like a. I guess I need to read more about it. But at this point, it is pretty much just a war. You know, it's a straight-up conventional war between two states, uh, specifically between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Let me see if I can find the notes for this. I don't. It's not too exciting in terms of like international relations because it's going to be heavily localized. I don't think it's going to like branch out to bring in regional powers or start World War Three or anything. And. Uh, the thing that started the conflict is what's called a, well, disputed territory is what it is. Uh, but the disputed territory in question has been contested ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, actually, they were fighting over it before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, I guess I should just explain the territory. Nagorno-Karabakh is the territory that they're fighting over. 
for the most part. And uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was part of Azerbaijan. But despite the fact that it was part of, part of Azerbaijan, the ethnicity of the people who lived in Nagorno-Karabakh was not Azeri. It was actually Armenian. And uh, the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh existed as a kind of in independent autonomous province within Azerbaijan. Now, so long as there was stability in the Soviet Union, that wasn't too much of a problem. But one of the things that happened when the Soviet Union was collapsing uh, in the latter years of the Soviet Union, politics was opened up somewhat. That was the uh, glasnost, you know, opening up the politics so that people could criticize governments and more openly participate in politics. And that was kind of intended uh, to try to alleviate some of the economic problems in the Soviet Union by allowing people to bring corruption and inefficiency to the public's attention. But one of the unintended knock-on effects is a explosion in ethnic nationalism. You know, kind of touched on that before. So Azeri nationalism and Armenian nationalism both kind of flowered during that period. And one of the things that really upset people in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh is the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh was not part of Armenia. Uh, they thought that it should be. And I think that's mostly just an ethnic nationalist thing. You know, again, I kind of could stand to read more about it just to get some more political context. But uh, I do think from what I know about it, that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh was basically, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict rather, was driven by an irredentist movement on the part of local Armenians. Uh, well, not just local Armenians, uh, Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia. So what happened is the Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, such as it was, since it was still part of the Soviet Union, started using some of the uh, military units and military police that were under that government's direct control to forcibly seize the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh from the Azeri Soviet Socialist Republic, which in turn responded by mobilizing its own military units. So even before the Soviet Union collapsed and these two territories broke off, they were actually already fighting over this territory within the Soviet Union, which is kind of wild. You know, it'd be like if the Alabama National Guard started fighting with the uh, Tennessee National Guard over the Tennessee River or some damn thing. You know, it's uh, pretty crazy. But the Soviet Union just uh, didn't have the coherence politically to kind of stop it. You know, I, they did try. It's not as though the Red Army wasn't wasn't deployed to try to handle it, but they couldn't stop it completely. And uh, that conflict dragged on until the collapse of the Soviet Union outright, at which point Azerbaijan and Armenia became independent countries. So at that point, it ceased to be a civil war within the Soviet Union and became an international conflict between them. And, uh, you know, neither country was really that powerful militarily. But as things happened, uh, the Armenian military was able to defeat the Azerbaijani military. And they were thus able to successfully seize this territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And uh, the thing was, you know, the big problem was that they didn't just seize Nagorno-Karabakh. They also seized some of the surrounding territory, uh, which had ethnic Azeri peoples in them. And those peoples were expelled from those territories. So it wasn't just that Azerbaijan had lost some territory it was also that they'd lost territory occupied uh, in part by people who were not Armenian. You know, technically, you could argue that, you know, Armenian territory should be part of Armenia. So, you know, fine. But in practice, that's not what happened. They also got a lot of collateral damage there in terms of Azerbaijani people. So 
there was a big uh, outflow of refugees from those territories into the rest of Azerbaijan. And uh, that just kind of became a running sore in relations between Azerbaijan and Armenia, as well as in Azerbaijani politics. It was kind of, well, not kind of, it was considered a national humiliation uh, to have lost to Armenia uh, for historical reasons, as well as just for, you know, political reasons. Nobody likes to lose a war. Uh, and it was also considered humiliating because of all the refugees. And, you know, of course, yeah, refugees are always a sensitive subject. Yeah, you know, you want to be able to take care of your people and to not be able to and have them living squalid lives in these camps. Uh, you know, that itself was embarrassing for the government. So it was all a very bad look for the Azerbaijani government. And it was even worse for them because they technically had more people. They actually had a advantage in the number of troops on the ground, but they still managed to lose. I think that partly had to do with the uh, terrain because the terrain of Nagorno, really the terrain of the whole of the Caucasus is just totally jagged. You know, it's just very rugged terrain, mountainous, hilly. It is not ideal fighting terrain if you're trying to uh, fight aggressively. But Armenia was able to make the most of it and apparently they were able to do it sufficiently to defeat the Azerbaijani forces. So even though they were the smaller military in the smaller country, they were able to come out ahead. Now, after that, after Armenia successfully seized the territory, the conflict became what's known as a frozen conflict. And this is where uh, fighting dies down, but where the underlying dispute that drove the fighting never gets resolved. And because of that, Azerbaijan and Armenia have been in what amounts to a cold war for basically 30 years. You know, neither one of them ever ever withdrew their troops from the front line. Uh, that's not to say that they were, you know, had trenches that they were opposite each other of, but uh, you know, they have troops forward deployed on their on their respective frontiers. You know, they never demilitarize they never demilitarized their border, and there's always been an expectation that at some point fighting would uh, flare up again, as it has. You know, it's flared up periodically. You know, but mostly those have been border clashes. You know, somebody lobs a few artillery shells over the border. Maybe there's a raid, you know, just minor stuff like that. Uh, this recent fighting is categorically different. You know, it seems that the Azerbaijani military has outright launched local offensives uh, to try to take back territory. Most of the territory they've been targeting has been territory that used to be Azerbaijani territory. So I don't think they've penetrated into the actual Armenian territory of Nagorno-Karabakh yet. Uh, but that could change. You know, the noises coming out of uh, Baku, you know, the capital of Azerbaijan, is that they want to try to take back the entire territory because the whole thing is technically Azerbaijani. And it's worth noting here that internationally, the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh is recognized as being Azerbaijani. It's not as though anybody's ever recognize the Armenian occupation thereof. And uh, to be fair to the Armenians, they never actually annexed Nagorno-Karabakh. They did seize the territory with their military, but they never annexed it into Armenia proper. And so technically, Nagorno-Karabakh is an independent country. It actually has its own government. Uh, it, it is, of course, heavily dependent on the Armenian government for support, especially military support. Uh, but technically, it is a separate political entity from Armenia. So internationally, it's recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but Armenia recognizes a kind of pseudo-independent government there uh, that is that runs the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. 
So technically, actually, and this is also relevant to the current fighting, the fighting going on is not between the Azerbaijani military and the Armenian military. It's actually between the Azerbaijani military and the military of the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, that's not really a meaningful distinction because really the Armenian military significantly subsidizes and assists them, and they're probably, they probably are directly fighting with them. Uh, but technically, for legal purposes, the fighting is between Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, the reason that's significant has to do with uh, international diplomacy. And this is where things kind of get hairy, or at least they were hairy early on in the conflict. Because uh, Armenia is in what's called the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically Russia's equivalent to NATO. It's a collective security organization in which all of the uh, parties therein agree to defend each other uh, from any attack. So an attack on one is considered an attack on all. So that means that technically, if Azerbaijan were to attack Armenia, then Russia would be obligated to intervene and defend Armenia. So, of course, the Armenian government went to Russia when this conflict started. It's not entirely clear, by the way, who started the conflict. I would have to read more about it to learn that. It could have been local clashes escalating into a war. It could have been something Azerbaijan was planning. I don't think Armenia really started it because they're kind of at a disadvantage in terms of the quality of their military units. Uh, but regardless, the Armenian government, when the fighting started, went to Russia and said, hey, you're obligated to help us. You need to come in and fight with us. And the Russian government said no. And the reason that the Russian government said no, or at least the justification that they gave, is that technically Armenia is not under attack. Technically, it is the independent country of Nagorno-Karabakh that is under attack. And Russia has no such security obligation to the nation of Nagorno-Karabakh. So that's kind of a technicality since, you know, it's really part of Armenia, really, in practice. Uh, but technically, legally, it's an independent, separate state. And so Russia is using that as an out to not intervene in the conflict. So the technicality of Nagorno-Karabakh being independent is significant in that way. Now, the other foreign power that's involved here is Turkey. And the Turks have been, I don't want to say aiding per se, because it's not like they've been giving them anything for free, but Azerbaijan has been buying military equipment from Turkey in relatively significant quantities over the past 10 years. So that's a relationship that both of, both of them have been cultivating. It's also a relationship that's predicated on uh, natural gas. You know, uh, Azerbaijan is a significant producer of natural gas. And a lot of that goes through a pipeline that runs through Turkey. I think it's called the Nabucco pipeline, something like that. So economically and militarily, They've been building ties for over a decade now, thereabouts. And historically, that hasn't really been that meaningful because Azerbaijan hasn't been that ambitious in terms of its foreign policy. And Turkey, historically, wasn't really interested in doing anything more with its relationship with Azerbaijan beyond, beyond making sure that its uh, energy supplies were secure and using it as an outlet for military sales. But with the uh, rage of Erdogan, the current president of Turkey, uh, that's changed. You know, Turkey, of course, under Erdogan has been much more ambitious in its foreign policy and has been trying to project its influence across the Middle East and the Caucasus now. And for him, this is an opportunity not only to build a closer relationship with Azerbaijan, 
but also to goose uh, weapon sales. You know, the Turkish military is always looking for a way to boost its defense industrial base, and sales to Azerbaijan are a good way to do that. So the reason that's significant is because that uh, most states generally qualify that you can't buy their stuff and then launch a war of aggression, or at least uh, if you do launch a war of aggression, it has to meet certain standards. You can't go and abusing, can't go about abusing human rights and whatnot. So Turkey has kind of loosened those restrictions such that they don't have a problem with Azerbaijan engaging in the current conflict, which is not a luxury extended to Turkey by way of Canada. Canada, apparently there's a Canadian company that supplies Turkish drones with uh, some of their, I don't know, some key technology, some sensor or something. I don't quite remember what it was. And uh, one of the agreements that Turkey was required to meet in exchange for the Canadian government okaying the sale of that technology was that they not basically do what they're doing uh, with Azerbaijan. You know, they're not supposed to give the equipment to a third party. And in effect, uh, that's what they've done. Uh, not the technology itself per se, but the drone that the technology is being used in. They're not supposed to just give the drones to anybody. So as is, the Turks have been uh, lending some of their drones to the Azerbaijani government who have been using them in their conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh with the Armenians. So the Canadian government didn't like that, and so they've actually banned the export of that technology to the Turks. So they're going to have to source that tech from somebody else if they want to keep building their drones. But uh, as is, Turkey doesn't really put the same restrictions on the stuff that they're selling to the Azerbaijanis, which suits the Azerbaijanis just fine. Uh, the Azerbaijanis, by the way, for their part, have been building up their military for the past 20 years. You know, as their sales of natural gas have increased, the government's revenue has increased, and they've been sinking a lot of that into the military, specifically so that they can at some point retake the lost territory, since that is such a sore point in the politics. I don't think any authoritarian really relishes uh, a military venture like that, unless they're just explicitly ideologically expansionist. You know, wars are always risky. I suspect the uh, what I read is that the uh, president of Azerbaijan is partly engaging in this conflict. I won't say that he started it. I suspect that he kind of did, but I can't say that he started it. But I suspect that he at least is engaging in this conflict in the way that he is uh, because of popular unrest in Azerbaijan. Uh, COVID-19 has had a big effect on the global economy. Natural gas prices are down, and that's had in turn a big impact on the Azerbaijani economy. And there has been some intermittent protests in Azerbaijan as a result. So uh, President Aliyev, I think is his name, uh, he may be basically doing what's called a wag the dog. You know, he's uh, in starting a war so that he can distract public attention uh, from political discontent at home. So that's the reading that I read online. May or may not be true. You know, there could be more to the story. This may be something they've been planning for a long time anyway, regardless. You know, again, they've been investing a lot in building up their military. So maybe this is something that was preordained. But uh, I suspect, though, that given the political culture and post-Soviet states like Azerbaijan, which tend to be more risk-averse in terms, in terms of foreign adventures like that, uh, probably more of a response to political considerations at home. That would be my reading anyway. Anyway, this is kind of a formless ranting explanation of what's happening there. I'm all over the place. I'm not the most coherent, but uh, hopefully, am I at least making some sense thus far? Yeah, I mean, it's it kind of reminds me of when people ask, like, what's the status of Israel and Palestine? 
It's like, actually, this has been an area of conflict for a very long time. <laughs> and this is the most recent chapter. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a lot of, uh, there's a lot to review just to get up to the current conflict. And the current conflict has quite a bit of meat to it itself. So it's kind of hard to explain just in a straight shot, coherent way. Um, I mean, I covered the fact that it's frozen conflict. that's just kind of been festering for a long time. There's political discontent in Azerbaijan that I suspect probably led the government there to initiate the conflict. Uh, there was potential for the conflict to become international in scope. The, uh, the Turks were kind of nominally backing the Azerbaijanis, and the Russians technically had a treaty obligation to defend Armenia. Uh, but it looks like the Russians are not going to intervene on a technicality, and the Turks are probably going to limit their intervention to the scope of drones and uh, intelligence sharing. I don't think they're going to do much more than that, really. It's probably just an opportunity there to sell more stuff to the Azerbaijani government. So it's probably going to stay regional. It's not going to expand beyond Azerbaijan and Armenia. And uh, I don't know that it's going to get too violent either. Now, my suspicion is that there's going to be a limited offensive in the two areas where most of the fighting is happening. And then that eventually the offensive will just kind of wear out and then things will kind of go back to normal. That's a guess on my part. You know, again, it could be that the Azeris are really serious about taking back the whole thing. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, they've been building up their military for a long time to a degree that Armenia has not been able to match. You know, the Azeris have natural gas and a lot of money from that that they can spend on the military. Armenia doesn't really have much of anything. And uh, not only did they not have a lot of uh, natural resources that they can sell, uh, they've also been basically blockaded within the Caucasus. You know, the Azeris, of course, are not going to let them uh, trade across their border. But Turkey also does not have great relations with Armenia. You can probably guess why. It has to do with the genocide back in the day. Uh, Turkish-Armenian relations have been, you know, they're not as bad as you might think, given the genocide which is a weird phrase, but, and they, you know, they have improved over time, but in general, they're still kind of frosty and the Turks don't really allow all that much trade across the border with Armenia. So as a result, Armenia doesn't really have a lot of access to the international economy. So beyond not having natural resources, they can't even re really sell what few resources they do have. And that's put a crimp on their economic development over time, and that's resulted in their military being more backwards and less well-funded than the Azeri military. So the Azeri military does have an advantage in terms of the quality and quantity of their troops at this point. So they could well leverage that into a general push into Nagorno-Karabakh. But the reason that they might not is that even if the Armenian forces don't have as much technology or as modern equipment, they still have the big advantage of defending really rugged terrain which is one of the reasons that they were able to kind of win out in that first conflict. So they could leverage that advantage now to kind of stymie any attempt by the Azeris to take uh, lots of territory. Um, from what I've read, the Azeris have successfully taken some, but again, mostly it's the former Azeri territories. They haven't actually pushed into uh, Nagorno-Karabakh proper yet. So it remains to be seen. Once they start rubbing in, up against that uh, actual Armenian, ethnic Armenian territory, then we'll see how much progress they make. I think if they push into that, then that'll suggest that they really are serious about taking the whole enchilada, so to speak. But if they reach our ethnic Armenian territory and then just quit, then I think that would be pretty strong evidence that the whole thing was just political from the start. Hmm. We'll, 
We'll have to keep an eye on it. I think other than that, other than the general, you know, fighting on the ground, I think the other big aspect of the conflict that's really interesting is the air war. I think it's pretty unusual, uh, at least in the past 30 years, for poor countries to fight a war and then have a significant air component. You know, I mean, historically, there's been uh, an air component to uh, wars in the developing world, you know, Israel and Egypt obviously had a pretty significant air battles during their various Arab-Israeli wars back in the mid-20th century. But for the past 30 years, generally wars have been, wars between poor countries anyway, have mostly been ground wars. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't even really think of that many wars between poor countries. Most of the, most wars in poor countries over the past couple of decades have been civil wars. Uh yeah, I really can't think of any off the top of my head. So, I mean, I guess this is probably one of the first significant country wars in the developing world that has involved uh, drones, basically. That's what I'm driving at. Uh, I don't think either side really has a lot of, like, bombers or jets or fighters or what have you. you know, they've got some, but they're expensive, and I don't think they've been leaning on them very heavily. But the Azeris have been using drones to good effect, and I think that's really one of the first times I've seen that that I can remember off the top of my head. Obviously, Iran has developed its own uh, set of drones, and they've used them periodically in, you know, Syria, Iraq. But uh, Iran, you know, they've got pretty decent revenue from oil and whatnot. So it's uh, not that surprising that they would have them. But Azerbaijan, I don't think they would have them at all if they, you know, weren't buying them from Turkey. So I think the use of drones there is pretty, a pretty significant development in the evolution of warfare in the sense that it marks one of the first times that uh, a very poor country, well, I guess I can't call them very poor since they're resource rich, but a developing country, let's say, has really used drones to good effect in a conventional war, as opposed to, say, a civil war like we've seen in Syria or Libya or what have you. So that's pretty interesting, I thought. It is at that, and that just kind of drives home the need for, you know, countries like the United States to really start planning for that. You know, I mean, it's relative, It's getting increasingly unlikely that the next war the United States fights in the developing world, I'm not saying it should, but, you know, it's probably going to happen sooner or later, just given historical precedent. And uh, given that it's probably going to happen again at some point, it's getting increasingly likely that when it does happen, that the opponent that the United States faces will not have drones of some kind and to some degree. So it's really imperative then for the United States to really plan for that. You know, it's not even just the drones. It's also, you know, uh, what they used to call standoff weaponry, you know, standoff missiles that you could fire over the horizon long range. You know, historically that's been the purview of great powers like the United States, the Soviet Union, and, you know, to a lesser degree, European states. But in the future, probably a lot of countries are going to have access to that. And that's going to give them a pretty significant, uh, what is it called? Area denial, access denial, A2D2. So what the military likes to call it, you know, the ability to deny access to an area to a uh, foreign power or more specifically to a foreign powers military. So it's pretty important for uh, the United States to try to develop technologies to defend against that and to defeat that technology. But that's kind of non sequitur. 
it's not much to do with Azerbaijan. I think that I think that as far as Azerbaijan and Armenia, that kind of covers it. You know, it's uh, talked about the international component. The United States and Europe aren't really getting involved. It's basically just noted that it's happening and told them to behave while they're killing each other. But otherwise, no intervention. Oh, there was, um, I think in my notes, I did have something about an atrocity. Oh, right. That was the other thing. Yeah. So the air war is interesting because of drones, but there's also the fact that both sides have Scud missiles, uh, which is not good. Um, Scud missiles are basically the cheapest form of indirect fire that you can think of outside of actual regular artillery. You know, with artillery, you're just lobbing shells, which are very cheap, but with the Ballistic missiles, you've got the whole missile that you're just chucking at the enemy. And uh, more modern, I mean, more modern militaries don't even use ballistic missiles like that. More modern militaries use guided missiles or uh, multiple rocket launcher systems of one sort or another. But the Soviets produced a good number of just conventional ballistic missiles and that they planned to just launch in mass at a given target. The United States kind of got a t- taste of that when they... Uh, got hit by the Iranians in retaliation for the Omar Soleimani killing over in Iraq. They don't, they can do a lot of damage because the conventional payload is so large, but they're so inaccurate that they just can't hardly hit anything for shit. You know, you really do have to launch them in a volley if you really want to do any kind of real damage. But sometimes you get lucky and it's kind of the spray and pray. Yeah. Spray and pray approach with uh, ammunition, the size of a city bus. Uh, so in the case of Azerbaijan and Armenia, both sides have launched them, have been lobbying them really at each other. And, you know, sometimes they blow up in a city or a town or something. And that's really where Ganja comes in. You mentioned the city of Ganja. That's the second largest city in Azerbaijan. And they've been getting hit recently. Been killing a few civilians. I don't know. The is a person who, the person who asked the question said, thanks for the answer and that they're from Macedonia. Oh, cool. Some context. Yeah, the Balkans has been uh, pretty active recently. We might talk about that later. It's an interesting area that I think a lot of people in the U.S., Canada, Europe probably are ignorant about, Western and Northern Europe, that is. There was a Reddit post recently of like Americans trying to say what each country was on a map, if they could identify it. And for some of them, it was 100% accuracy with France, Britain, Germany, Spain, the big obvious ones. And then the further south and east you <laughs> went, the less people knew about it. And the Balkans, it was like very close to 0% accuracy. Yeah. They have had more name changes, I think. Oh, yeah. In the past few hundred years. Yeah, it was a lot easier back during the Cold War. Because then it was like four countries. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty much just Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, <clears throat> Albania, Romania, Bulgaria, and yeah, that was pretty much it. I mean, Greece, but that's kind of its own thing. Yeah, it was that was pretty much it. And so then after the Cold War, Yugoslavia broke up and, you know, that's now a whole gaggle of countries over there. And Czechoslovakia broke up too, so that didn't help. Yeah, I don't blame people for not being familiar with them. 
but it's a pretty interesting peep it's a pretty interesting region if you kind of invest time into it and it's very diverse and it has very dynamic politics that's not always a good thing if you live there <laughs> i'm sure yeah it means less stability yeah. yeah i'm sure people would prefer it be a little more predictable but you know as an outside observer it's always interesting watching history unfold from afar I think everybody has learned the value of watching things unfold from afar in 2020. <laughs> yeah. Having it unfold in your backyard is not nearly so much fun. Nope. I got a little taste of that in Seattle. I'm very grateful for living in a place that's safe and I'm not feeling a sense of physical danger and that kind of thing. But with all the, protests and that kind of thing there are people who set off flashbangs and fireworks so i can hear the unrest from where i am even if it's not like anywhere near the same tier as say what's happening in the balkans oh yeah balkans, is, that was asked balkans is a good deal different i got you know since we're here and we've got chat listening and we've got somebody from macedonia listening i have a question for chat and for, for anybody who lives in the balkans um how much of a connection to the Caucasus do you feel? Because it's not that far away, and there is some historical connection there, but ethnically speaking and culturally speaking, they're pretty distinct. So I'm curious how much affinity there is between people in the Balkans and the Caucasus. For people who aren't familiar with those regions, what are the rough borders of those? Well, the Balkans is kind of what you just mentioned, you know, southeastern Europe. And then the Caucasus is basically the region between russia and iran mm. so the stands basically yeah that's more central asia caucasus is georgia azerbaijan and armenia ah yeah yeah if you look at a map you can see the black sea sitting there in central asia and then west of the black sea you can see this little isthmus of territory that kind of connects russia with the middle east and it's that weird little isthmus. That's where the Caucasus is. It's an interesting region that I don't know a whole lot about. It's kind of between Europe and the Middle East and mixes cultural influences between them. It's, it's pretty interesting. It's something I want to read about at some point because that's kind of a blind spot for me in terms of my understanding of regional history. Did you know that Armenia has the oldest Christian church in the world? Yes. Well, sort of. I knew that they had some of the oldest links to Christianity. Yeah. A lot of the early letters that were sent by the disciples of Christ and stuff mm -hmm. were around in that area. Yeah, you got it. It's one of those old school Christian countries. Oh, yeah. It's very conservative. The funny thing about it, too, is that it's more orthodox Christian-ish, and it has its own uniqueness, of course, but for a lot of Christians with their like American evangelical, that's going to be a pretty different uh, perspective, yeah. pretty different traditions. You probably wouldn't recognize the songs if you went to church <laughs> there, for example. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, it's uh, it was never absorbed into any other church. You know, it's not like a branch of the orthodox church or anything. It's it really is its own independent church, and it's just thousands of years old. It's a 
pretty wild that they've managed to survive so long, but it's really cool. And it's an interesting. I think it's kind of like the Egyptian church. The name of that is escaping me right now. Which one? They're Egyptian Christians. Oh, Coptic. Yeah, Coptic Christians. Yeah, yeah you know, the whole of the Middle East, it, it almost seems weird to think of it now, but, you know, most of the Middle East was at one point Christian. And it's, mm -hmm. you, know, that's, you know, it's changed a lot since then, obviously, but... Yeah, and it actually was Christian. It actually stayed Christian for a long time, even after uh, Islam came to the region. You know, obviously, Egypt fell to uh, Islamic invaders in like you know 700, 800 AD, whenever it was. But uh, even after that, it's not as though conversion happened overnight. It actually took something like a thousand years uh, for Islam to become uh, the dominant religion in Egypt. You know, I remember reading a book. Uh, actually, you may remember. You remember Robert? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So his his parents lent me a book about the Middle Ages in Europe, and I read in there about uh, you know some of the governance in Islamic Egypt back during the I think it was the High Middle Ages, and at that time, you know, obviously the Sultan and the bureaucracy. Well, the Sultan anyway was Muslim. And uh, a lot of the wealthy elites were Muslim, but the bureaucracy was actually still mostly Christian, even as late as the high middle ages. And even something like half of the population, if not more, was still Coptic Christian at that time. So the process of conversion was very slow. It took a long time. Even now, Coptic Christians, I think, are still something like 10% of the population. And it's taken them a long time to get to that 90% level. <clears throat> well, the Armenian church, fortunately, <laughs> never had to worry about that. You know, the Ottoman Empire was not nearly so proselytizing. They were quite willing to allow uh, them to continue existing where they were. Persians also. Yeah, it's always an interesting element of whenever you take some form of political control over a region is how much do you care about shifting their ideology because yeah. sometimes people go in there maybe even with the primary purpose of shifting their religion or at least some people will claim that and then other places it's kind of like oh that's cool that you worship that way carry on then yeah the ottomans were a little less uh rigid about that than were you know the original caliphate obviously that's that's not a terribly high bar granted but you know nonetheless uh in general, you know, I think the Ottomans ran the Caucasus similar to how they ran the Balkans, which is that they allowed the locals to practice Christianity so long as they were willing to uh, pay the jizya, you know, the tax uh, ordained in the Quran for other monotheistic faiths. And then uh, also you had to give up, I think, a son for the Janissary Corps or Janissary Corps. I think that's how it's pronounced. What does that mean? Is that military? Yeah, that, the Janissaries were a uh, military caste, I guess, within the Ottoman Empire. You know, basically they were slaves. They were slaves taken from Christian families or you know, perhaps other families, non-Muslim families, basically. And uh, they were taken when they were very young and they were taught Arabic and they were educated and they were brought up to be officers and soldiers in the Ottoman military and sometimes also bureaucrats. I think that was something that they did later, though. You know, eventually the Janissaries became very powerful within Ottoman politics, but that was something that happened over the course of time. 
you know, originally the Janissaries were exclusively a military institution, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, former Christian children taken from their families and educated to be warriors. That's who the Janissaries were. And uh, kind of a mixed bag in terms of the perception amongst the Christians. I mean, obviously it's pretty terrible to lose a child. So in that sense, there was uh, no small amount of angst amongst the broader population for a long time. And I think I remember one of the original grievances listed by nationalists in the Balkans in the 19th century justifying various wars of independence against the Ottomans was specifically the practice of having to give up a son to the Janissary Corps. But I also remember reading that some families were actually okay with it and that they saw it as being uh, better for their children, you know, because they were so poor. You know, many of them were just poor peasants in the Balkans that, uh, you know, being taken into the Janissary Corps meant that they were going to have a better future than anything they could have gotten in, you know, rural Bulgaria, for example, or what have you. But obviously that wouldn't have been a universal sentiment, but I mean, it just kind of illustrates that it was more complex than just people resenting the fact that they had to give up the child. You know, history is complicated like that. But anyway, yeah, that's the Janissary Corps. And I imagine that they probably would have been more interested in making sure that people honored that practice and paying the Jazia tax than they were in necessarily proselytizing that much. It probably helped that, uh, you know, Armenia has never been terribly wealthy. I mean, by the standards of the Caucasus, the land there is relatively fertile. You know, it's got a big valley there. But uh, beyond that, you know, it just hasn't been like a major transit point in international trade. You know, obviously the Silk Road kind of went nearby, but I don't remember Yerevan ever being like a major node per se, at least not to the point where there's like a massive influx of people. You know, you know, Egypt is a big contrast because Egypt obviously has always been an enormously wealthy province, well, an enormously wealthy territory, uh, historically speaking. So when the Arabs conquered it, uh, there was a big influx of Arabic people coming in to take advantage of the economic opportunities presented uh, by the conquest of Egypt. You know, I don't think that happened to anything near the same degree in the case of the conquest of the Caucasus. And it also helps that, historically speaking, a lot of the Caucasus was governed by the Persians. The Persian Empire is the best at administration. Just almost throughout its history, it was always an innovator and leader in terms of quality of administration, which sounds boring. <laughs> administration probably doesn't excite anybody. Join the Persian Empire. We are good at government. Yeah, but, you know, I mean good governance is valuable. I, I think that's not a stretch to say at this point, <laughs> you know, given yeah. everything that's been happening all over the world, you know, I mean, I mean, just pick a country and you can see issues with governance, some countries more than others. But yeah, I think good governance is definitely valuable and that everybody can pretty much see that now in 2020 of all years. So yeah, I mean, saying a country is good at administration means that they're good that they have good governance. And, you know, almost throughout history, Persia has had that. And that was really cool for, uh, you know, people, territories with ethnic minorities, because that meant that they were dealt with with relatively light hand. You know, I mean, if you're cruel or oppressive towards a territory where a given ethnic group is dominant, 
separate from your own, uh, then they're probably going to revolt at some point. And you'll probably be able to put it down if you're kind of a wealthy, successful empire. But it's going to be expensive and it's going to make trouble for you. It's going to be a problem, you know, especially politically. Because people might challenge you. They might say, hey, this wouldn't have happened if you weren't such a dumbass. I'm going to raise a rebel army and kick you out. Or maybe it just hits your budget in a way that makes you vulnerable to an enemy empire. Or maybe while you're out campaigning with your army, somebody just seizes power outright and then you have a civil war. So there's problems that it causes. So it's really much better to try not to be an asshole when you're administrating a territory like that. And, you know, Armenia for a lot of its history had that advantage. I don't think they had it for all of their territory. I think uh, maybe somebody in chat is pointing this out. I think they were also governed by the Ottoman Empire for a long time. And I don't think the Ottomans were as good at governance as the Persians were. But in general, yeah, the Caucasus, I guess let's reframe it and say that the Caucasus was ruled with a much uh, looser grip, you know, not so much of a, not so much an iron fist as a velvet glove, as it were. And now you, now you got me wanting to talk about the Persian empire. (laughs) It was really cool. I mean, it was such, I was looking at the demographics of the Persian empire a couple months ago. I have no idea why. I just, I just was for some reason. And the population of the Persian empire, I expected to be comparable to the Ottoman empire because they were such big rivals, historically speaking, for centuries. You know, and the, you know, they always seemed to kind of stalemate to a degree. So I figured, okay, well, they must be roughly equivalent in terms of you know, wealth and size and population. But the Persian Empire was actually much smaller. You know, it was like less than half, maybe, of the Ottoman Empire's population. And that really surprised me. And I think it comes down to two things. One, governance, like we talked about. They were just much better at uh, getting good administration and good leadership out of what resources they had. But also, they ran their, they ran a really good economy. You know, the uh, Silk Road ran through Persia. And because they had such good administration, the government in Persia went out of its way to try to make it as easy as possible for caravans to move through Persia. So not only were the provinces well-administrated, well-governed, and not only was the government not nearly as corrupt as you know, many equivalent governments, uh, they were able to get a lot more tax revenue out of their economy, even though they had fewer people, because they were able to do so much in terms of building infrastructure for the Silk Road and for caravans, such that caravans preferred moving through them, and you know, they were able to derive a lot more tax revenue that way. I think caravanasseries... I'm almost certainly butchering the pronunciation, but caravanasseries are an example of the kind of infrastructure that the Persian Empire built in order to try to make it easier to do business there. So it was just a very smart empire, and they were so smart that they were able to go to toe-to-toe with the Ottoman Empire, which was much bigger, you know, and technically had more of an advantage commercially and demographically. Very cool stuff, historically speaking. Yeah, I just fired up the wiki to get a rough sense of the time period. 6th century BC to the 20th century. Oh, yeah, they lasted a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I think the height, well, I guess I don't know enough about the history to know when the height of the Persian Empire was, but, you know, I want to say Sasanians, Sasanians or Sasanians, I don't remember. 
basically the contemporaries of the Romans. I think that's who they were. Yeah, Sasanian was 224 to 651 AD. Okay. Yeah, that was a high point. And then also they were doing really well in like, uh, I think 1400s and 1500s. I don't remember what the dynasty was though. Safavid? Yeah, Safavid. 1500 to 1736. Yeah, I think that also was a period of uh, particular power and wealth for them. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of an underserved history, the history of the Persian Empire. I think well, I I speak from a sort of western perspective in that regard. You know, we tend to focus on the Ottomans because they were scary for so long. You know, threatening to invade Europe and attacking Vienna and all that kind of thing. So the Ottoman Empire has a much greater profile in the context of European history. And so in turn, I think Westerners are just a little more familiar with it for that reason. But the Persians are kind of farther away and kind of did their own thing. And they're historically not necessarily all that warlike. You know, they have a reputation anyway for being more diplomatic than uh, aggressive. Although they've certainly oh, no. launched their fair share of wars over They time. look pretty aggressive in the movie 300. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that was one of the expansionist periods. Yeah, if you rule for 1,300 years, you're going to have a mixed bag of leadership. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to read a little bit on... Uh, wikipedia of all things you know take this for what it's worth but i was reading on wikipedia trying to figure out you know why it was that uh the persian empire seemed to kind of go into decline in sort of the 1700 1600s or so or no no actually actually that was a different project this time i was reading wikipedia to figure out what the persian empire was doing during the 1600s that's what it was 1600s is an awesome century by the way if you ever want to learn interesting history just read about anything happening anywhere in the 1600s, and it'll probably be pretty wild. Uh, so in the 1600s, you know, you had the Thirty Years' War, and uh, I was kind of curious why it was that the Ottoman Empire didn't just come in and attack Europe during that time, because that would have been a pretty good time since Europeans were pretty busy killing the shit out of each other. And what I found is that the, the reason the Ottomans were didn't intervene is because they were distracted by wars with the Persian empire. So I thought that was pretty interesting because I had no idea what was going on in the Persian empire at the time. So I read a little bit about it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I found is that, uh, after the Persian Ottoman wars of the early 1600s, the Persians kind of went dormant because they had a series of bad sultans and they were just sort of incompetent leaders of one sort or another. And they just, and I think one of them was like an outright psychopath from what I read, something or a sociopath, something to that effect. He was just uh, totally involved, self-involved and very cruel towards the people in his court. So that just, uh, you know, like you pointed out, that just illustrates the importance of leadership. You know, if they'd had different leadership, it may be that the Persian Empire would have had a much greater profile during the 1600s and 1700s for that matter. But as was, just uh, successive generations of poor leaders kind of made them a very quiet empire during that period and started them on a sort of long, slow glide uh, towards decline. They did have one cool guy, though. They had, uh, oh, what was his name? I think his name was Shah something. Not Shah Pahlavi. That was the later guy. 
it, it slips my mind. He's a really famous guy in Iran. Yeah, everybody remembers him. He was actually a general, I think, at first, and then he basically just seized power because the sultan was a dipshit. And well, that's really what it was. I mean, they were getting ganked by Afghan tribesmen, which is not a good look for any big empire. Uh, not a knock against the Afghans. Obviously, they can hold their own, but traditionally they've been vassals of the Persians and Persian governance weakened so much in the 1700s that they were able to just kind of invade Persia and uh, pressure the capital and you know, just wreak all kinds of mayhem, you know, basically just running wild. And uh, the Sultan just wouldn't or couldn't do anything about it. So this guy came in and he was actually the general in charge of uh, put in charge of putting down the Afghan tribal revolt. And he actually did it successfully on relatively meager resources. And everybody was thoroughly impressed with him to the point that he was able to pretty easily just walk into the capital and say, I'm in charge now. And uh, he faced a number of problems. You know, Persia at that point was beset by, you know, pressure from the Ottoman Empire, uh, a rising Russian Empire, and, uh, you know, obviously the aforementioned Afghan problem. So his thing, uh, what he did is that he actually approached the Russians and said, hey, uh, I'm going to settle our border dispute here in your favor. In exchange, will you attack the Ottoman Empire with me? And uh, the Russians said, sure. And uh, they, that started a pretty successful effort on the part of the Persians to get back some of the land that they lost to the Ottomans over the course of uh, previous Persian-Ottoman wars. They didn't get back a whole lot of it, but they made some progress. Now, the really interesting thing about that effort with Russia is not so much the fact that they were a Muslim power fighting with a Christian power. The really interesting thing is how they paid for it. Because, you know, war is expensive. And the Persian economy was not in the best state at the time. You know, uh, competition from uh, new trade routes in the Atlantic were competing down profits from the Silk Road. So that was making it harder and harder for the Persian Empire to really get the revenue it needed to compete uh, with rising European powers. So in order to raise the revenue they needed to uh, wage war against the Ottoman Empire, what they did is they actually just invaded India, specifically the Mughal Empire. And uh, it was not a subtle thing. You know, they basically just raised, raised their entire army, everybody they could, and took the capital just outright. And you'd think the Mughal Empire would perform a little bit better than that, considering how powerful they were. I mean, to be fair, they were kind of in a period of decline at that point, but they were still pretty tough. They were still one of the wealthiest empires of the world. And yet the Persians under this particular leader, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but under this particular leader, they just walked over them. They just walked through the Indian army, seized New Delhi, and plundered it. And they made so much money off of plundering New Delhi, which was one of the wealthiest cities of the world at the time, that they were able to use that to pay for the entire war against the Ottoman Empire that they were planning. A very successful raid, to put it mildly. Also very embarrassing for the Mughal Empire, not only because they lost their empire, but they also lost, lost their throne. Uh, the throne of the Mughal Empire was what was called the Peacock Throne. And it was very fancy, you know, like the name implies, it was decked out with, you know, peacock feathers and jewels. And I think it was made of gold or some damn thing. It was a prestigious item, to put it mildly. And the Persians just stole that shit and took it back to Persia. And they've actually still got it today. They've hung on to that hmm. for centuries now. It's considered... Uh, it's considered a highlight of their history. You know, it's something they're really proud of. Uh, 
the fact that they were able to go toe to toe with this very powerful empire enabled it to defeat them. Was it a sort of surprise attack? Because that is a pretty big advantage. If you have initiative and you don't know that there's about to be a major siege on your city, just because like that's an unusual reason, I think, to invade someone. Usually it's because they feel some strong convictions that this is our land and we ought to have it. <laughs> As opposed to, yo, like, we want to do some expensive stuff, but we don't have the money. Do you want to go <laughs> invade? Yeah, yeah. You're right in a modern con. Well, I shouldn't say modern, but like the past 500 years, you're right. You know, that's kind of more the case. But that was actually pretty common before that. You know, waging war was mostly something done for profit, especially in Central Asia. You know, you didn't go to war because you wanted to steal land. You wanted to go to war because you wanted money. You know, you knew some other territory or kingdom had lots of lots of well goods and stuff you could steal and if you could successfully get it that would pay for the whole operation that's actually why cities were looted for a long time the looting was actually part of the pay for your soldiers you know you couldn't always pay with cash you know to raise a big army but you could say hey if you join up with me we're going to take this big wealthy city and you can just steal whatever shit you want for the day or two after we take it and that'll be your reward. You know, that'll be how I pay you. And if a commander had a good enough of a reputation, that could be enough by itself to get a lot of people to join and raise a big army. So raids like that just to raise money, not actually all that uncommon, historically speaking. And so this was, you know, by the time the 1700s came around, it was kind of dying out. You know, like you say, it was more control of land and that empire building, what have you. But this is kind of like one of the last great raids in a sense. And uh, the reason it was so successful, I think, is just the traditional problem that India has faced in defending against invasions from its northwest, uh, which is that it's expensive to maintain a large standing army on your frontier. And in periods where the economy is going through a trowel or where the government is dysfunctional and can't raise a lot of money, they really haven't been able, well, they really couldn't afford to maintain a large standing army. So the result is that a really mobile army from Central Asia, or in this case, Persia, uh, that had a lot of cavalry could move very quickly, so quickly that the empire in India, you know, whichever one it was, because this happened several times in Indian history, uh, whichever empire was in power at the time just would not have the time to mobilize an army in response. And in that, for that reason, they would basically just be caught off balance. And, uh, you know, the more mobile, mobile army would just either steamroll smaller armies and seize weakly defended cities, or where they uh, encountered large armies, they could just go around them. You know, generally the large armies were more infantry or uh, pikemen or what have you, so they couldn't really keep up. So in periods where the Indian, well, where India, let's say, was uh, doing well politically and economically, generally they didn't, Generally, they were able to fend off those kinds of invasions, but the early 1700s was financially difficult for them. You know, it was politically fraught as well. So I think for that, for those reasons, uh, they were just coming under too much pressure from too many other areas for them to really fight back successfully. And that combined with solid leadership on the part of Shah Jihan. I think that's what is it? No, that's an Indian guy. Really want to remember this guy's name. I'm going to look it up because that's going to bug the hell out of me. History of Iran. 1700s. Nader Shah. That's what it was. 
Nader Shah, one of the leading figures of Iranian history. Yeah, so part of the reason that raid succeeded was not only difficulties on the part of India with uh, organizing a response, it's also because uh, the Iranian commander, uh, Nader Shah here, was just a very good commander. You know, he's just one of the better commanders in the history of the Middle East. Some wild-ass tangents from the Caucasus, but... <laughs> yeah. I'm having fun. Seems like chat's been having fun, too. Someone said it was the highest IQ stream on Twitch. Not sure, but that's nice. Thank you for the compliment. Anyway, I guess... Um, gosh, do we have, like, questions? Is there anything else we should be doing? Are we doing okay on think... time? I think we may have a couple questions. Fuzzy Cord stepped up. Yeah, there is one. What's up with Chile dissolving their constitution and what happens now? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to find the list of questions. Is that still here? That's something else. It's in the Agent Smith channel. Oh, that's what it must be. I must be in the wrong channel. Okay, text channels. It's up near the top uh, in the private biz section. You have a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's above the text channel section. Private biz. Oh, okay. There it is. Okay, thank you. Yeah, with Chile, this is actually a holdover from late 2019, and we actually talked about this a fair amount. Um, so the issue in late 2019 for Chile... Uh, was just mostly inequality. Inequality was the main driver. I think the catalyst, I'm having to, I'm having to strain my memory because it's been so long. If I'm remembering correctly, the catalyst was that the city of Santiago, which is the largest city in Chile and the capital, raised the uh, fee for using the metro. I think that's what it was because then a whole bunch of like students were really upset about that because they felt like they were being discriminated against that, uh, you know, the you know, Chile is one of the wealthiest countries in Latin America. It's not super powerful. You know, it's not like, you know, they don't have like a world-class financial system or something like that, but relative to other Latin American countries, Chile's GDP per capita is relatively high and the standard of living is relatively high. So they do pretty well for themselves. But over time, that's resulted in more and more inequality. You know, I mean, like with any country that experiences economic growth, some people get left behind. But Chile's political system has not been very responsive to that over time. And the result is that there's a particular enmity felt on the part of uh, the poorer people in Chile towards the political status quo, because they feel like there's so much wealth and you know there's so much economic growth, and yet... Uh, public services have not improved correspondingly. And so the straw that broke the camel's back was the fee increase for the metro. You know, the, the students just weren't having it. And so finally they went out and protested, you know, sometimes violently. Uh, well, I shouldn't say violently. That connotates, you know, political violence. But uh, what's the word I want? Arson. You know, they, there is some arson. You know, they attacked the bus stations. They attacked the metro, you know, burns this, that, and the other, what have you. Violent protests, let's call it that. Uh, so that instead of 
instigating a public backlash actually garnered a lot of public sympathy because there was a lot of other people in Chile who also were upset at the lack of improvement in public services. And so the result is that the protests snowballed into a general movement for political change in Chile. And uh, eventually, after some hemming and hawing, you know, we've talked before today even about how difficult it is to respond to protests. You know, do you crack down? Do you give concessions? What have you? So the president at the time in Chile, actually, he's still president now, was a conservative dude. And I I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, he was conservative. And at first he tried to just kind of use the police and offer some minor concessions here and there. Uh, But eventually the protests continued to escalate. And finally, he offered a major concession, which is that Chile would hold a referendum on whether to change its constitution. So that was enough to kind of staunch the protests, and they went quiet for a long time. And partly that's because of COVID, but also partly because uh, they've kind of gotten what they'd wanted, in part. So Chile currently has a referendum coming up, I think, or did, I can't remember if they've had it already or not. Chile hasn't been in the news much, but uh, regardless, there's supposed to be a referendum on whether or not they want to change the constitution, and if that passes then there will be a constitutional convention in which the Chilean people, or more accurately, representatives of the Chilean people, negotiate a new constitution. What's hoped for on the part of the protesters and opposition in Chile is that the new constitution will give more ambit to social spending by the Chilean government and uh, will also perhaps require such social spending. You know, at the very least, uh, better public health care cheaper public services of one sort or another. You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a whole laundry list of stuff that they want. Uh, healthcare is the one that I was reading about back in a couple months ago. I still need to go back and read that again, though. There's some good stuff there. Uh, but in general, that's what they want. You know, I can't really go into specifics because it's been too long since I've read about it. But in general, there's a desire on the part of the political left and reformists in general in Chile to have more government services for poor people. Uh, or perhaps for disadvantaged people generally. And they are hoping that they can kind of write that into the new constitution. That may or may not succeed because there's, you know, just because there was a strong support for that on the left doesn't mean that there's not a lot of conservatives on the right in Chile who are going to want a relatively conservative constitution. So we could see protests again in Chile, depending on how the negotiations for the constitution go in a, in a prospective constitutional uh, convention. You know, there could be a lot of friction over that because a constitution is a big deal. That's not like a law because a law can be changed later relatively easily. But the bar for changing a constitution is very high. So whatever they write into it is going to be the law for a long time, probably. So there's very high stakes in negotiating a new constitution. And that's going to fray political tensions in a country where there's already quite a few. So there could be a lot of sparks over that. But for now, it's kind of been out of the news because I don't think they've had the referendum yet, or if they have, they haven't had the constitutional convention yet. So that's still pending. And they may well delay that in any case on account of the virus. But yeah, just roughly, that's why uh, they're changing their constitution over there. And Chile is a really cool country. It's unique in Latin America, especially South America, just because it is kind of isolated. It it actually started as a uh, breadbasket or at least that was the intention. You know, this is 500 years ago, back when the Spanish were conquering uh, the Incan Empire. 
uh, after they did so, there was kind of a shortage of food. You know, there had just been so much war and you know, disruption to the economy and agriculture that uh, there wasn't a whole lot of food up in uh, Cusco or Lima. I guess it was Lima that they put the capital. So in order to ensure they had enough food for their capital of the... Uh, Isn't Lima in Peru? Yeah, Lima in Peru. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, they made that the capital of the... Peruvian vice royalty or the vice royalty of Peru. I don't quite remember. Basically, that's what they made the Incan Empire after they conquered it. You know, it was the Incan Empire, then the Spanish conquered it, and so then it became a subdivision of the Spanish Empire that they called the vice royalty of Peru. And the capital thereof was Lima, which is a major port city through which a lot of the gold and silver mined in Peru and Bolivia was exported. So it got to be pretty wealthy. But the trouble with Peru is that the whole western coast is semi-arid so it's kind of hard to grow food there so in order to try to uh, deal with that shortage uh, the governor there i don't remember if the spanish king or the governor of the vice royalty but you know some powerful figure mandated that a colony should be founded further south along what is today uh, chile where food could be grown in sufficient quantity to provide uh, supplies to lima if not the broader empire. So that was actually the original genesis of the founding of Chile. It, uh, you know, for those of you familiar with Chile, you may know that it looks like a, just a long strip of land on the West coast of South America. That's not what it originally looked like. You know, the Northern third of Chile was originally uh, part of, I think the vice royalty of Peru, basically, you know, sort of the same, same subdivision. And the th bottom third of uh what is now Chile was originally basically just terra incognita. It was kind of too cold for anybody to really care about until the late 1800s. So the original colony of Chile was originally just the middle third of what is now Chile. That territory there in the middle of Chile is relatively fertile. The climate is relatively moderate and temperate. It uh, would probably be relatively familiar to people from Europe. And so the Spanish tried to colonize that to act as the breadbasket for the Viceroyalty of Peru. So that was the genesis of Chile. So for a long time, it was mostly just an agricultural colony and not a very big one. And it was a rather violent one because uh, the Mapuche Indians who lived there were relatively warlike and did not respond well at all to Spanish incursions. There was a number of uh, Mapuche Spanish wars over that little territory down there. So there was a number of, there was a lot of fighting. And uh, other than that, it was pretty quiet for a long time, for a couple centuries. You know, intermittent wars with the Mapuche and agricultural exports. Uh, wheat, I think, is what they grew. And then I think in the 1800s, they kind of broke away. Well, I mean, obviously, Chile became independent after, you know, the uh, wars of liberation from Spain in the early 1800s, you know, along with the rest of Latin America. But that kind of presented a problem for them economically because it disrupted some of their uh, revenue. You know, they'd been exporting wheat to Peru, but Peru increasingly didn't need it. You know, they could buy it from elsewhere. So uh, Chile, I think after that, started selling wheat mostly to Australia, weirdly. Uh, Australia was a relatively new colony itself at that point. You know, it had only kind of gotten started in the late 1700s. So there was a need for food there, too. Uh, you know, they could kind of grow their own, but uh, it was also pretty cost effective to import it from Chile. So, you know, for a while, Chile and Australia had kind of this interesting little, uh, what's the word I want? 
synergy, I guess. Uh, the little word slips my mind. But, uh, oh, symbiotic relationship. That's why they had a kind of a symbiotic relationship for a couple decades until Australian agriculture kind of became self-sufficient. And after that, Chile really faced a problem because, uh, you know, their principal export wheat was no longer really viable as an economic driver. So I think at that point they started uh, exporting copper or maybe it was tin, basically metals. And this is after the Pacific War when they seized all that territory in the north. Now, the northern third, roughly, of Chile today used to be part of Peru, formally, and Bolivia, I think. And they seized all that in a big war called the Pacific War in the 1870s. I think it was a border dispute or some damn thing. I don't quite remember exactly what the genesis of the war was. But uh, Chile, despite being so small, won hands down. It's something they've been proud of ever since. Chile has always had a pretty relatively strong military. It's kind of a proud military tradition relative to other Latin American countries down there. Anyway, that's that's an unasked for history of Chile <laughs> for anybody who's interested. I like those things, especially when it's a country that doesn't get too much uh, talk time. Yeah, Chile is pretty cool. There's actually a pretty decent representation in gaming and esports because they're relatively well off. They're more connected. Really? Do I have the? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like a a huge country in terms of like well, they have tons of gamers. It's like half the pro yeah. scene. It's not to that extent, but I think Chile and Peru and Brazil. I'll have a pretty strong representation with uh, a few pro gamers from various different domains. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. I think those are probably some of the wealthiest countries in South America. And I would kind of expect a rough correlation between income and uh, participation in esports and you know online gaming in general, since you know computers are expensive. Yeah, what was it? Chile, Peru, and Brazil, you said? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But what about Argentina? Uh, some. I'd, I'm trying to think of a pro from Argentina. There are likely quite a few go-to gamers in every country that has enough PCs and fast enough internet. Hmm. Peru is big in Dota, Chad is saying, which I've also heard. Yeah, Peru's come a long way. They used to be a poster child for economic mismanagement back in the 80s. They actually had a bout of hyperinflation back then. I think that was partly because they had a, well, no, it was, I, it was just bad economic management all around. They had successive parties in government from all across the political spectrum, all of whom just screwed things up <laughs> you know they had sort of a military government they had a liberal conservative government and they had sort of a left socialist government in quick succession and none of them was able to stop the country slipping into hyperinflation no matter what they did things have improved considerably since then much more stable macroeconomically now 
musical governments. We're going to try all the different governments until we find one that works. <laughs> well, mission accomplished. Some of that was Fujimori. Fujimori was the dictator that came to power after the Afro government. But I don't know how responsible he was personally for pulling the country out of the uh, economic nosedive. I think his government helped at least. I don't know if they initiated it, but they helped at least pull the government out, pull the economy out of hyperinflation. But some of that also just had to do with commodity prices. By the time you get to what 2001, commodity price prices were booming all over the world. So that really helped out. Well, commodity, global commodity prices were booming and developing economies all over the world in turn did really well. So Peru certainly benefited from that. So that probably also had something to do with it. But I think the economy had already stabilized by the early 90s, well before that, which is what makes me think Fujimori had something to do with it. I'm not familiar enough with Peruvian history to kind of make that argument. So somebody in chat more familiar with Peru is certainly welcome to uh, elaborate on that. And I'd certainly be most grateful. We do it. We still got another hour to go. I'd probably prefer a half hour. Half hour. Because I, yeah, you were mentioning you were pretty tired. You've been up a while, haven't you? Yeah, and I've been going for a couple hours. Yeah, that'll do it. That will do it. Let's see, we had another question, so why don't we take a look at that. Recently read that China had put pressure on a French museum opening an exhibit with features exploring the Mongol Empire and Genghis Khan. The Chinese government wanted to censor important details and descriptors, including Mongol, Genghis Khan, and Empire out of the exhibits. Why would the French or the museum capitulate to said demands? Hmm. Well, I hadn't heard of that, so that's an interesting case study. I would probably chalk it up. I don't know any details about this, but it sounds like one of those situations where it costs them very little to request that. The leverage that they have is a different question, like, well, would France actually want to do this for some benefit or to avoid something bad happening mm -hmm. for them? Like, maybe stuff becomes more expensive or whatever. But for China to say, change this, this, and this, that requires a person to basically send a post or call somebody. That's pretty cheap to yeah. do. If I had to guess, and I do, because again, I haven't read the story, I would say it had to do with, uh, I would guess that it was because that uh, the stuff that the museum was showing was on loan from China, which would mean that the Chinese would have leverage then and... Uh, such a dispute you know if you it's one thing to say that you're going to borrow uh artifacts for display uh, but the lender does have some authority and uh how you display it so if i'm right you know if the stuff on display comes from china then it may be that the chinese government is saying hey display it this way or at least don't display it in this way and if you don't then we're going to demand that you return the stuff which would be a problem for the museum because they probably spend a bunch of money advertising and whatnot and are trying to recoup the loss. But that is sheer speculation on my part. Let's see. I've actually got the article here in front of me. 
Yeah, I wasn't too far off. Preparation for the show planned in collaboration with the Inner Mongolia Museum in Ohat, China. Ran into trouble after the Chinese Bureau of Cultural Heritage pushed for changes to the original project plan. So I was right. Stuff on loan from China, the Chinese government didn't like it, blah, blah, blah. So they're threatening to pull their support for the program. Take their toys and go home. I'm not sure why they would care about the use of the word empire, though. (laughs) Oh, that's what it is. Well, that's what happens when you do stupid shit. (laughs) What happened? Um, we talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago. Uh, what it was is that there was a dispute in Inner Mongolia because of a change in policy in the education system. The education system had allowed Mongol children to largely be educated in the Mongol language. Uh, but then recently oh. the government changed that so that mostly they have to be educated in uh, Putonghua, the Man- Chinese Mandarin. So that led to some protests and some unrest and the government hasn't really cracked down per se, but they're not happy about it. And they've been pressuring parents uh, to allow their children to go back to school. One of the forms of protest is that children were pulled out of school and parents were trying to educate them themselves or just weren't allowing them to go to school. So the government was kind of indirectly leaning on them to try to let their children go back to school. So that was a thing basically. And apparently this department, uh, the Chinese Bureau of Cultural Heritage, uh, is apparently sufficiently concerned about it, concerned about this museum uh, displaying these, you know, basically symbols of Mongol nationalism, symbols of Mongol history, that they want the museum to kind of tone it down a little bit. And I guess that's part of, uh, I guess that's part of the Chinese government's response to the unrest in Inner Mongolia. I don't know why. I don't think anybody in Inner Mongolia is going to go to France to see that, or at least not any large number. So it seems kind of stupid to me. I'm just reading what's in the article here. The article is suggesting that it's uh, that they're linked, but I don't know that it's that's not really concrete proof. That's just kind of coincidence. It could be, but I also wouldn't put it past the Chinese government to do something like that because there's a lot of departments in the Chinese government that just kind of. Well, I mean, if you're a bureaucrat in China, you're not necessarily always in it to be the most efficient, pragmatic, effective bureaucrat. Sometimes you're just there because it's a job and you're just kind of, you know, it's like George Jetson. You go in, you push a button and you go home. There's a lot of people who kind of treat their bureaucratic jobs like that. And in China, people are very risk averse and they don't want to rock the boat. And so they just kind of want to go to work, go home without having to think too hard. So in this case, it may be that the guy in charge of this department noted that there was an issue with inner Mongolia and just figured, well, just to play it safe, let's kind of tone down the Mongolness of this explicitly Mongol exhibit in France. Look, your exhibit, it's great, but it's a little bit too Mongolian. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a it's an exhibit yeah, on so Mongolia. If I'm right, right on that, it's an example of risk aversion. It may not even be that he's concerned people in inner Mongolia will be like incited i guess by it it may just be that he's trying to do something for the sake of being seen to do something you know there's this problem somewhere so i'm going to be proactive and do something about it even though it doesn't make any sense just so that i can say later that i was active and did something about it 
basically bureaucracy incarnate. <laughs> Chinese history has seen quite a bit of that, so they're no strangers to the uh, inner machinations of bureaucracy, but it were otherwise. Interesting. Well, thank you for the tip. I learned something new. Let's see. So we had one more question. What's going on with Cusco, Cusco, Moldova, and Russia, and now the territory island of snakes, where there are a lot of natural gas resources? I've never heard of the island of snakes. But that sounds interesting. Island of snakes. Doma Island? I'll have to read more about that later. That's a, new, that's a totally new one on me. Cusco is dead, I thought. I don't think he's... Or is this different Cusco? Yeah, Nicola Cusco. He was, the dic, he was the last dictator of Romania. He was shot dead when the party kind of threw him under the bus. <laughs> You know, there was a lot of uh, uprisings in Eastern Europe against communist governments. Yeah, well, not uprisings, maybe more like just mass protests. But Cusco was one of the only, I think he was the only dictator in Eastern Europe at that time who responded violently. You know, he refused to give any ground. And eventually, uh, even party insiders turned on him. You know, the protests were escalating, even though he was using violence to try to put them down. And... Uh, Oh, what was it exactly? It was the military technically that arrested him and put him on trial. It was more of a show trial, though. They actually aired it on TV. You know, Cusco went from being this untouchable godlike figure in communist Romania uh, to being put on trial on live television and then publicly executed. Again, also Jeez on live Louise. television. Pretty dramatic downfall. But the reason that was able to happen is because the party under him just turned on him completely. You know, the Communist Party of Romania felt that uh, it was in danger and it felt that something had to be done to try to appease the protesters. And so they kind of gave the green light to the military to go and kill him. Meanwhile, the rest of the party actually kind of stayed in power. And a lot of those guys are still a part of Romanian politics. There was never quite the same process of... Uh, what do they got? Eastern Europeans have this weird name that they use to refer to the process of weeding out communist officials from their political system. I don't remember what it is exactly because it's kind of a weird technical name. And it, this is the only context I've ever heard it used. So it's not like some word that you see in other conversations or on other topics. Some funky thing. But anyway... Uh, some countries in Eastern Europe really went out of their way to try to remove all communist influence. Like if you were part of the Communist Party or if you're a communist bureaucrat, then you would be forbidden from you know, participating in politics pretty much. Uh, but Romania and Bulgaria never really did that. So a lot of the major communist elites from the communist era are actually still kind of around and still important political figures. So Cusco was kind of the uh, sacrificial goat by which the Communist Party of Romania was able to kind of stick around, albeit by another name. Usually they say sacrificial lamb, but goat is more metal. So that's, <laughs> that's true. Fair point. 
let's see, who's... I don't remember who the... Does this mean Agent Smith is a metalhead? I don't remember who the current... Find out. Yeah, the current president of Romania is a guy named Klaus Ionis. Johannes. I don't know how to pronounce that. But I'm not sure why uh, our questioner here is asking about Cusco. He's been, he's been kind of out of the picture for a while. Maybe, maybe I, he's asking about a different Cusco. Let's see, Moldova and Russia. I don't know what's going on with Moldova and Russia specifically. At least there's nothing new going on. I can talk about what's been going on. That's a little stupid. <laughs> Moldova's relations with Russia are just kind of weird. I mean, Moldova's whole history Why? is weird. Well, I mean, Moldova is one of those countries in the former Soviet Union that had a frozen conflict that's dragged on interminably since then with no, you know, conclusion in sight. But, uh, you know, unlike with Armenia and their frozen conflict, Russia actually deployed peacekeepers to the frozen conflict in uh, Moldova. And so there are actual Russian troops there. The thing is that the Russian troops deployed there who were originally deployed as peacekeepers at this point are really more about maintaining Russian influence in the Balkans. You know, at this point, the Moldovan government would probably prefer they leave so that they can go and annex the uh, breakaway territory uh, that they have there. But as is, the Russians have no intention of leaving. <laughs> so it's a frozen conflict that's probably going to be propagated for a long time, you know, subsidized as it is by the Russian government. Yeah, the Moldovan breakaway state is called the Transdniester Republic if I'm remembering correctly. And the thing about the Transdniester Republic is that it's mostly Russians. You know, basically what happened is that Moldova had a large Russian minority uh, when it was part of the Soviet Union. And after Moldova broke away and became an independent country, most of those Russians were not comfortable with the prospect of being an ethnic minority within Moldova. And so they just formed their own state and tried to break away from Moldova and declare their own country. And that country, of course, was Transnistria Republic. Uh, it helped that the ethnic Russian population was concentrated in the eastern part of the country. So it's not like they were diffused around everywhere. You know, they were already pretty concentrated into some of the more industrialized areas in the east. So they were pretty easily able to seize power there and declare independence, as it were. Uh, nobody recognized them. I don't think even Russia recognizes them, right? Even, you know, even now. But uh, the Moldovan government is probably the poorest government in Europe. You know, even poorer than some of the other poor countries in Eastern Europe, like Macedonia or something. So as a result, they've never had the resources to take the Transdniester Republic back. They've never been able to force the issue. And I guess to be fair, even if they did, the Russians would still be there to stop them. Uh, but, as, you know, even so, they've just never been able to make any headway on that dispute. So it's just this broken country, pretty much. I mean, it's not completely dysfunctional, but of all the countries in Eastern Europe, it is easily the poorest. And I think, you know, one of the major industries is supposed to be trafficking because there's just nothing else to do other than organized crime, pretty much. You know, pretty much that in agriculture. So Moldova has this weird relationship with Russia, whereby, on the one hand, there's a kind of affinity there, historically. 
because they were part of Russia, the Russian Empire for so long. And also they get a lot of their natural gas from Russia. So, you know, they can't complain too much because <laughs> then the Russians will do something. To so, you know, Russia has leverage there as well. So they can't do too much there. But on the other hand, there's antagonism because of the uh, issue with the breakaway republic. You know, there's this dispute with the Transdenista Republic that is de facto backed by Russia. So there's kind of a love-hate relationship there. It's a bizarre country, Moldova. It's just weird in a couple of ways. For one, it's ethnically Romanian. That's the dominant ethnic group. There was actually some talk after the collapse of the Soviet Union that uh, Moldova might allow itself to be annexed by Romania, you know, thus creating a kind of greater Romania. But as was, that never happened. You know, Moldova was just so poor that uh, the Romanians weren't all that interested, I don't think. And uh, there was a lot of resistance on the part of ethnic minorities within Moldova itself, obviously the Russians being the preeminent example. But also, uh, you know, another weird thing about Moldova is that they actually have a pretty large ethnic minority of ethnic Turks. They're concentrated in the southern part of the country. And I think they even have their own autonomous province, something like the autonomous province of Gagaz. I have no idea how that's pronounced. That's just my rough attempt. But uh, yeah, they're kind of down there. And I think they're relatively more pro-Russian. I think the uh, ethnic Romanian population is a little more skeptical, but the ethnic Turks, I think down in the southern part of the country, principally grow wine. Well, I guess you don't grow wine, but they grow grapes for wine. And a lot of that gets exported to Russia. So there's a vector of economic influence there for Russia that they use to try to leverage Moldovan, the Moldovan government. You know, that particular province wants to be friendly with Russia. And so their representatives in the Moldovan government tend to push that line. So, yeah, it's ethnic Moldovan, ethnic Romanians, rather, versus angry ethnic Russians versus grape-growing ethnic Turks. It's an interesting dichotomy, all within a country where the government has virtually no power, <laughs> you know, no, no legitimacy. Well, some legitimacy, but very little administrative capacity to really do much. Let's see. So that was, so we talked about Cusco for some reason. That's a snapshot of Moldova and Russia off the top of my head. I, I didn't really talk much about the politics. The politics are mostly status quo. Basically people pretending to be pro-democracy, anti-corruption to varying degrees. Secretly pro-corruption. Well, I guess nobody's pro-corruption, but you know, there's like a reformist anti-corruption party that is really more of a status quo party and probably is just as corrupt as the uh, other major party there. Anyway, that's... Moldova and Russia, and then I don't I have no idea what this Island of Snakes thing is. So that's something I'll have to read. But thank you for the tip. I always appreciate learning new things on here. Are we still good on... You said half an hour, right? Yeah, so you go it's, for like another... It's 2.26. How are you on that? Well, I'm in the middle of a game, so... I can't push the button to wrap up right now, so carry on then. Hello? Hello? Oh, I guess he stepped away. Am I muted? Let's see. Well, I guess we can just do the next question then.
Uh, let's see. What are possible outcomes for the fighting in eastern Ukraine? It seems like the fighting has no end in sight. Yeah, that's pretty much another frozen conflict, just like all the other ones we've been talking about. That's probably not going to change anytime soon. I think I have read that uh, the fighting has tamped down considerably. You know, the uh, new president of Ukraine, what's his face? Uh, what's his name? I forget his name. The new president of uh, Ukraine was a former actor who won election, I think, late last year. It started with a V, I think. So his big thing, as far as the Eastern Ukrainian conflict, was that he wanted to... Uh... Oh, okay. Can you still hear me? Yes, okay. So we still have audio. Okay, I was asking you before, uh, how are we doing on time? Did you want to keep going or are you kind of, uh, are you too tired? Wrap up in 10.15. Okay, so it's about 12.45 thereabouts. Gotcha. All right. So let's see. Uh, so this guy, the president of Ukraine's approach to the eastern Ukraine conflict was to give concessions to Russia. You know, there had been a peace deal nominally. Uh, well, I guess a path to peace, let's call it that, that was agreed uh, in Minsk. Uh, by the Minsk group. It was a group of countries, uh, European and Russia, that got together to try to negotiate some kind of settlement between uh, the warring factions in Ukraine. And uh, one of the agreements, well, one of the steps that was supposed to be taken was that both sides were supposed to withdraw their forces from the front line. And neither one of them really ever did that because there was disagreement about who would do it first. Uh, also, there was intermittent breaks in the ceasefire, you know, people fighting when they shouldn't have been fighting, so that didn't help. But uh, the president of Ukraine decided to unilaterally uh, withdraw his forces from the front line as a gesture of goodwill in order to try to get the peace process moving. And that was pretty much the last I'd heard of it. I really haven't heard hardly any news about the conflict in Ukraine since then. So I don't know that Russia ever really reciprocated that. I wouldn't think I would have read about it if they had. I think it would be in the news. Uh, I remember a lot of people were giving him shit about it because they were saying that, you know, doing it unilaterally meant that the Russians could just gain with no cost, basically. You know, the Russian, well, not the Russians per se, but the separatists in eastern Ukraine. You know, basically you were just giving them a concession without getting anything in return. So I don't, I think the separatists did reciprocate. I think they did eventually withdraw from the front line, but I don't think there's really been a lot of movement as far as uh, negotiating anything more. I remember there was something about holding elections too. That was another part of the agreement. You know, there was supposed to be free and open elections in the separatist territories so that they could send representatives to the Ukrainian legislature. But there was a bunch of, uh, complaining about the nature of that and that the separate whether or not the separatists were actually allowing free and fair elections and that kind of thing so i don't think that ever actually happened but i could be wrong again i'm out of data as far as ukraine developments i haven't read a whole lot about it it's kind of been on the back burner in 2020 because the rest of the world's been so on fire <laughs>
But yeah, I don't think uh, whether or not there's going to be more fighting, you know, going back to the question here, whether or not there's going to be more fighting depends entirely on the course of the peace process. You know, if the peace prospect, if the peace process does continue to unfold as it was originally envisioned, uh, then there is a good chance that the fighting could end. But I don't know how much either side really wants it to end. I think the separatists are really paranoid about the Ukrainian government. And also, I think the Russian government would prefer it if the Ukrainian government continued to have a frozen conflict, since that would just make it more difficult for them to integrate more with the West. And the Ukrainian government itself has a lot of nationalists in it that are pretty loath to give up territory. So I don't think that they're uh, going to give too many concessions to the separatists on that count. I think they're going to want to take a pretty hard line. So the peace process doesn't really have a great future, I would think, just given the distribution of uh, political interests there. But I could be wrong. You know, it may be that there is some kind of uh, agreement that actually does move forward to the satisfaction of all parties involved. But uh, in general, I would be skeptical just because of the great power, you know, just because of the international interests at play. But I would have to read more about it to give you any real substantive answer. So I kind of have to punt on the question. Let's see. We still have a few more minutes. So let's see. Was there any older questions we missed? Oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We've got some really old ones from back in September. I never did find that. Um, we actually had an older one here who wanted to ask about tax base in the services economy, but I think that's going to take more than a couple minutes to answer. Uh, over here, this question, though, we could probably answer pretty quickly. What is the worldview of Trump outside of the United States? Well, you can probably guess. <laughs> it's pretty negative in general. Um, I'm trying to, I think there are some people in some countries who kind of think that he's a powerful, strong leader, but I don't think that there's too many fans at this point. I think he had more international support when he first came into office, uh, specifically in places like Russia, you know, because there was kind of this expectation that he was going to be relatively more friendly towards Russia. And I think in general, a lot of other countries that had traditionally had bad relations with the U.S. also thought he might mark a change from the status quo. Uh, so I think people in those countries were more inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt and think of him as being a, uh, you know, outsider rebel who was going to shake things up. But over the course of the past four years, it's become increasingly obvious to uh, those people and those countries that he's not really going to significantly change American foreign policy, at least not in a way that would really benefit them. So since that was his main constituency of uh, proponents in other overseas, uh, I don't think he now really has a lot of favorable opinion that he can point to overseas. I mean, Western Europe never really liked him because they kind of saw him as a, uh, you know, crass populist, which is not a popular style of politics in Europe. They've uh, had some bad history with that <laughs> in the past. 
uh, Latin America mixed bag. You know, they didn't really like the fact that they were kind of all lumped in together. You know, just in general, the Trump administration took kind of a hostile view to immigration from Latin America in general. And so uh, that kind of rubbed people the wrong way. Also, just the way he talked about Mexicans also aggravated a lot of people in Latin America in general. Even though Mexico is a very distinctive culture, it's not as though all of Latin America is the same. But even so, you know, the, the fact that the Trump administration and Trump himself seemed to take a dim view of Mexico, I think uh, a lot of people kind of inferred that meant he didn't really like Latin America in general. So there was some of that. Obviously, there are some people uh, like in Brazil who like him because they kind of see in Trump someone like Bolsonaro, you know, who's just kind of bold and brash and gets things done. It's kind of a Caudillo style of politics that has a lot of history in the region. So let's see. So that's Europe, Europe, Latin America, China obviously doesn't like him for obvious reasons. Uh, South Asia, in general, they don't really have a strong opinion of him in South Asia. And I think he has been getting more proponents in South Asia just because of uh, Modi. You know, Narendra Modi is the prime minister of India and he's kind of a populist leader in his own right. So there has been some buddy-buddy uh, interactions between Trump and Modi that both parties have used to try to appeal to uh, their respective constituencies. You know, in, a, in Trump's case, he's trying to appeal to Indian Americans. And uh, in Modi's case, he's trying to appeal to uh, the, dias the diaspora uh, in the United States, who might think can still vote in Indian elections. So there are some people, you know, more than you might think in India who actually do like Trump because they kind of see him as a, an ally in a sense, or at least a friend of their favored leader, Modi. Southeast Asia doesn't really like him that much because their principal concern is foreign trade, at least as far as the United States, and they don't really like the uncertainty that he's introduced into international trade. They actually do like the way that he's dealing with China. That's kind of one of the little paradoxes of the Trump administration. You know, in general, overseas, there's long been a discontent with the way that the United States has handled China. They've long wanted the U.S. to be more confrontational and to, you know, have a stronger presence in the region. So in that sense, they're actually quite happy with the Trump administration and the way that they've been dealing with China. But at the same time, there's been so much uncertainty in foreign trade that it's impacted them in a negative way. And uh, keep in mind, the principal influence that China has over the region is economic. So that actually represents the United States kind of shooting itself in its foot. It would be much better to try to create more predictability and to create institutions that tie the region more to the United States. That's really more how the region would prefer the United States exercise its influence in the region rather than being erratic and unpredictable. So kind of a double-edged sword there as far as U.S. foreign policy and how it's perceived in Southeast Asia. Uh, Japan, Japan has mostly just been Shinzo Abe kind of playing Trump. Shinzo Abe kind of decided very early on that he was just going to try to appeal to Trump's ego. And he's been very successful at that. He hasn't rocked the boat. Whenever Trump has challenged him, he's given him concessions. It's just kind of, uh, it's just kind of been managed pretty well by the Japanese government in that sense. So, I mean, all told, uh, the, 
Japanese government has managed it pretty well. And so the United States government, <laughs> the perception in Japan, sorry, that's what I'm trying to get at. The perception in Japan is not as bad as you might think, just because the Japanese government has managed it relatively well. But in general, I don't think they're very impressed with him. They see him as being a little too erratic, at least from what I've read. So Africa, not a lot of strong opinions there. Uh, Middle East, they don't like him. <laughs> you know, the whole Muslim ban thing early in his uh, or early in his tenure kind of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. So, and obviously, people in Iran don't much like him because they see him as being cracking down really hard on the uh, sanctions and whatnot. So overall, that's a rough, that's a rough review of international perceptions of Trump. I mean, just in general, relatively negative overall with some support in some places you might not expect it, but overall pretty negative, mostly because of the unpredictability. I think that's the main thing. It's okay if you want to be a nationalist, you know, the God knows the world has plenty of nationalist leaders right now. But the issue more is that Trump is really unpredictable with it. He's just a little too airsats and uh, random uh, for people to kind of get comfortable with him. So I think that's, I think that about does it then. Okay. I'm reading a uh, Nero's mic is apparently broken here. So I'm going to have to do the wrap up. So it's not broken. Thanks for listening Castro. to world discussion with agent Smith. Much appreciated that uh, everybody came and listened and uh, participated in chat, hopefully. Thank you, of course, to Neuro for hosting. That's always much appreciated. I always respect the opportunity that uh, he, or you, I should say, you provide by allowing me to come on here. Always much appreciated. Thank you very much. And uh, I guess everybody have a good night. That's it for today's episode.